Hey guys, a couple of things before we hop into this episode. Um, the first one is I'd like to thank our sponsor, Public Hangings for Pedophiles. We just hopped right into the show, and so I wanted to take the time to make sure that they got their shout out. Public Hangings for Pedophiles is a organization that is dedicated to fighting human trafficking and pedophilia. We all know that this is a particular type of evil that is very daunting, and you wonder how can you even get involved to help this particular crisis. Well, one of the ways that you can do that is to go to ph-fp.com and buy some of their dope-ass swag. Every fiscal quarter, they make a donation to another organization that has been vetted by them that is actually making meaningful impacts in that war in the trenches um, with them as well. And so, one of the easiest ways that you can help support it and help support survivors, which is a very, very important aspect of this as often overlooked, is you can just go buy a t-shirt or you can buy um, whatever else they might have on their website. I particularly like the flag, PHFP. However, you know, go check it out and see what's right for you. So, like I said, um, <clears throat> go to ph-fp.com and you help support the show, you help support them, you help support survivors, and you can make a meaningful impact in something that seems like so daunting that you wouldn't even know what to do. So with all of that being said, public hangings for pedophiles turning awareness into action. Then the next couple of things. One, I want to apologize for my microphone quality. Matt Billingsley here. I was having some extreme technical difficulties Um and it took a, about an hour before we got into the show um, when I was fighting with it. My regular microphone was not working for some reason. All of my backup mics and um, all of this money that I spent on music equipment was not working either. Um, my system just didn't like me. So I used my internal microphone and the audio quality reflects that. So I'm sorry, guys, that you have to listen to two and a half hours. Uh, my voice isn't great on a good day with a good microphone. And so I'm sorry that you have to suffer through um, a very long podcast with um, not as uh, clean audio as I like to provide. And then the third thing is just to plug our guest, Mr. Flirt Cheap. At the very end, he tells you where you can find him. And you can find him on Flirt Cheap on Instagram. Um, he is also the co-host of Thunderpunk Radio. And he also has a substack, uh, flirtcheap.substack, uh, I believe. Um, he plugs it at the very end. So anyways, uh, something that is good to know when it comes to finding him, flirtcheap is all just one word. Um, otherwise, you might not find him in the searches. So just wanted to throw that out there. Special thanks to our sponsor. Special thanks to flirtcheap for coming on and chatting with us. And the last thing I want to say that um, Against the Mob is a proud No Kings Network member. If you are a content creator in any way, shape, or form and are interested in getting in the fight for liberty with us and into and to um, get in the fight to influence the culture war, then by all means, reach out to myself or reach out to Jamie Kane of Liberty Uninterrupted, and we'll point you in the right direction. We are looking for any sort of content creators. You can be a photographer, videographer, blogger, doesn't matter. You don't have to have a podcast. Anyways, shout out to the No Kings Network. With all of that being said, and four minutes of just freelancing this off the top of my head, early in the morning to get this episode out to you today. Here you go, Against the Mob podcast. 
How do you compete with the largest military influence the world has ever seen? A true underdog story of one brave girl who dared to take on an empire. Join in this summer for the incredible tale of a KGB sleeper agent and learn how one brilliant child was able to be weaponized into disrupting energy independence around the Western world, setting up the stage for the fall of the U.S. petrol dollar. How dare you! Don't miss Operation Thunberg, coming to a theater near you. Against the Mob podcast. Of course, you've got Logan Carpenter here, Matthew Billingsley, as always. And today we're bringing back Flirt Sheep, everybody's favorite guest. So get pumped about that. Uh, we're going to go in today to talk about a little current events, uh, especially because Matthew and I uh, assured all of you how this probably wouldn't really come to blows in Russia and Ukraine because it would be insane for, for Putin to want to f- do a full on invasion and the repercussions of such action. Uh, but we're going to talk about those actions today. We're going to talk about covering sanctions a little bit as foreign policy in general. Uh, We're going to cover the Biden administration and exactly the sanctions they brought down on Russia, uh, potentially some future sanctions and and what the repercussions of those could be. Uh, And if we have some time, we might even talk about bug out kits, bomb shelters and uh, overall preparedness for the impending nuclear fallout. Yeah, pretty excited about this one. Flirt Cheap, thank you very much for joining us. How are you, sir? Thanks for having me, guys. I'm doing great. I love being a guest on this show, as always. Um, I wish it was under some better circumstances, of course, but, you know, still, it's good to be here with y'all as always. Yeah, well, I mean, hey, the world's, world's always falling apart somewhere. At least it's not falling apart in our backyard right It's now. no mystery that people benefit from war, and, and we seem to have a, a pressing issue in our podcast to cover. So there's silver linings to every nuclear war. Yeah, yeah, there always is. Um, and, you know, there's always that repricing of joy that happens in a nuclear uh, holocaust, you know, right now. <laughs> How excited are you when you find fresh water right now? You probably couldn't give a shit. <laughs> now, a uh, imagine after the bombs fall, you could probably trade one cask of water that hasn't been irradiated yet for the daughters of at least three or four people. <laughs> that's one thing to look forward to you know you got to get get your eyes ready to start playing this game of hide and seek for uh for value you know save some of that chapstick you might be able to buy a house with it later <laughs> <laughs> i like i like that reference that's a good one um there is um i have a uh, i have a basement full of virgins that i sacrifice come snow season to make sure that it uh you know make sure the snow gods are a piece so maybe i'll hold on to those um just in case <laughs> to trade them for some chapstick and some fresh water because the snow gods have not liked my sacrifices this year. <laughs> well, if you quit finding those virgins playing FIFA online. 
male virgins aren't worth a lot, man. I don't know if they told you. <laughs> it's a little, little uh, more of a flooded market. <laughs> definitely, definitely less value valuable but hey you get your hands on what you can get your hands on you know <laughs> it's like when the market when the markets if you can't afford gold you buy silver or bronze <laughs> in this case tin don't have a golden calf maybe a double do hmm. all right cool <laughs> well before before we just spiral into the nonsense that we're so prone to we wanted to take the time to kind of do an episode sanctions for dummies right and we want to start very basic um, general level and just kind of talk about, you know, what sanctions are um, and then kind of hop into, do they work? Do they not? What are the repercussions? And then we'll hop into some more details. Uh, so I, just so we're all on the same page, right, for definitions and whatnot, you can look at sanctions as measures imposed on a state, a group, or individuals as punishment for certain actions. Does that sound pretty fair? Yeah, more or less. More or less. Um, and usually when we talk about sanctions, we're usually talking about economic sanctions as well. So it's usually the, the global community agreeing that they're not going to conduct trade with a certain entity or they're not going to buy a certain thing from a certain group, et cetera, et cetera. And that's, that's usually what we're referring to in the modern times when we say sanctions. Makes sense. And that's kind of the idea behind all of it, of course, is the, to put pressure on somebody. These are kind of lauded as the non-aggressive way to put pressure on foreign countries. Um, so it, at least at surface value, it, it does seem like it would make sense. We don't want to be in hot wars all the time. Uh, so you, you take measures to make life more difficult on your enemy without actually being uh, overtly aggressive towards them. Yeah, and that's how it's presented in this kind of like liberal economic order as a non-aggressive, but ultimately any sort of threat to say like, oh, hey, you're not allowed to do this. Then if the person does it anyway, then obviously you have to actually do something to them. So it really is, you know, a militaristic threat in, in practice anyways, because obviously if someone tries to violate the sanction and you don't do anything, then, you know, the sanction basically doesn't exist. And if someone tries to violate it, and you do do something, then the hot war starts. Um, so I, I feel it does have uh, an implicit threat behind it, even though they like to pretend it's not when they're talking about it on the news. It feels like an act of war to me, just in general. Right, and that's one of the, the sneaky parts about these sanctions where they, they laud it as, we're the good guys, we're coming down soft on these people, we're not actually uh, implementing our military, but, I mean, you look at a place like Yemen right now, uh, one of the worst uh, atrocities going on in this world currently, and essentially, we have people dying of diseases that are, hadn't existed in a couple decades simply because we're blockading their ports and not allowing children to get uh, medicine for cholera and uh, other diseases that just don't exist anywhere else in the world because we have modern medicine. And the only reason they exist there is because of these trade embargoes. Um, I think that's a big part of what we're going to talk about today as well, is when you do lay these sanctions, even if you are able to bully somebody and they can't call your bluff because they can't uh, take any kind of actual physical assault from your military when you're the largest empire in the world. Uh, we we got to talk about blowback here. Blowback can come from getting blown up and becoming radicalized, but it can also come from starving to death. That, that can radicalize a person just as easily. Exactly. And starving someone to death is an aggressive act, whether we like to pretend it's not, it most certainly is. Right. Or denying them basic medicine that we we have to, to cure diseases. I mean, there's there's all sorts of ways you can really screw somebody's life up with these sanctions. Uh, and that's kind of why I was burying the lead a little bit there. And, and then you went right into it. But it's these aren't as uh, as overtly polite as we might like to try to act and pass down. 
most yeah, definitely. And, and what you end up what you end up seeing too is um it's these restriction it's the, like the restricting of exports um all of this has drastic wide sweeping effects and i know that i like where, where you guys were going with this like it sounds benign right we don't want to get into a hot war so let's impose sanctions but sanctions as we're going to get into have some very real consequences for both the sanctioned and the sanctioners right there's going to be blowback that we experience as the quote-unquote the west because of these sanctions right you can look at fertilizer one for america right we get a huge chunk of our fertilizer from Russia. If the international community is now barred from trading nitrogen, the main component of fertilizer, then what's going to happen? The fertilizer price goes up. Fertilizer price goes up in our corn-based diet. Then the price of food goes up. The price of food, and that's going to be on top of inflation, right? It's going to be it's going to be in addition to. So you're already going to see your food price go up just because your dollar is worth less, but you're also going to see it increase because it's more expensive to produce. And then, um, and then you also have like the 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 energy sector of Europe, right? There's a lot of there's going to be even though it it seems like um, it seems like it's just this. Well, we're going to put sanctions on, and everything will be okay. There's going to be very real consequences. But then something that I was thinking of, and I had to finish that thought, is that when it comes to these sanctions, you really start to run into this interesting realm of it's it's that it's that next step towards war because it is very 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 aggressive, right? It's not cool to embargo somebody. It's not cool to put a blockade up and starve people to death. And I think that there's going to be very real blowback, not only economically, but potentially physically from some of this, because as soon as you start sanctioning people now, as life gets harder for Russians, even though this is a self-imposed catastrophe, you've now added some fuel to the fire that Putin can say, hey, look, Look at what the West has done. You weren't starving before they put these sanctions on you. So one thing that I think we should get into maybe later is just the level of anti-fragility Russia has towards sanctions. Um, they basically spent the last 12 years building them their economy up to the point where like this, any sanctions we impose on them aren't really going to affect their lives. Um, they're a net exporter of food, a net exporter of energy. And, you know, if a hot war starts and suddenly they can't ship their oil and gas out, like, oh, no, what are we going to do? I guess these tanks are all going to have to run on Russian gas. <laughs> like, you know, there's not really anything we can hold against them. Like, we don't export anything to Russia. They barely buy anything from us. I mean, outside of maybe, I mean, maybe what some technologies, microchips, do they get? I mean, is that is that a huge do they get a lot of technology? That actually from the is West, one of the is it, uh, the larger um, sanctions that we are kind of lauding against them is in technologies like uh, semiconductors, that kind of thing. So that, that is one of their big imports uh, from what I was reading is kind of the technology sector. So that's that's one area, at least, where maybe these sanctions will temper with them a little bit. Uh, but to Flirt Cheap's point, I mean, they've been under sanctions since 2014 when we uh, when they took Crimea and then we helped uh, Ukraine neo-nazis take over the country <laughs> to get rid of russian friendlies uh they've you got been your events flipped up we uh we helped get rid of the russian friendlies then they took crimea excuse me other way yeah apologies uh but yeah the point of it standing still that we've been they've been under sanctions from the west since then uh i think also much to flirt chief's point they have kind of been preparing for this i mean everybody knows 
the quickest way to get in a war in this world is to not have nuclear weapons and to go off the American oil dollar. That will get a, your regime changed pretty quickly. Uh, and Russia's watched that. I mean, they're playing the same proxy war game we are in the Middle East. That's kind of who we're playing this proxy war game against. We're, we're moving around our pawns on the chessboard there, uh, trying to control these large swaths of uh, natural resources. Um, but they, they're fully aware of the history that comes with going off of the American oil dollar. And they're also fully aware and have us in their sights as their enemy and not just America, but the West in general, NATO. Uh, they, they don't see this. Um, and it's an interesting thing too. A lot of people have kind of taken a racial view of this uh, because we're so wound up in race here in America, but Russia doesn't see themselves as white people like Europe is white people. They're not the same. They see themselves very different. They have a completely different culture. They come from a very different tradition and they don't consider themselves to be the same type of person that they see uh, into their neighborhoods, into to Europe. So I, I think that's a big part of this too, where they have been preparing for a long time. They've been building up their allies to the East, their trade partners to the East uh, and especially in China. And I mean, like Flirt said, if we shut all, all their exports down, it uh, doesn't seem like China's all that averse to trading with them. And, and China's got a, a pretty reasonably sized population that can consume a lot of natural resources if you want to sell it to them. Yeah, most definitely. And, you know, we could talk about this kind of shift. Like there's, when you view the world, there's one section of the world which is kind of a, a consumer economy and one section of the world which is a producer economy. And um, later, I'm sure we can talk about SWIFT and the interbank communication system. But, you know, one concern that I have is we're going to essentially sever the world into two separate financial markets that can't communicate with each other. And one of these markets is going to be one where there's a net producer of basically a lot of the things people use. And one is a net consumer. And you could end up in this situation where, let's say, on the Western side, um, oil is $500 a barrel. And then on the eastern side, for lack of a better word, oil is like $40 a barrel in you know whatever money they end up using over there, which would probably be the renminbi. Um, and you know that's not exactly a good thing because then it creates demand one for, let's say you're a country in Africa and um, you're trying to decide whether you want to be in the Chinese sphere of influence or the American sphere of influence, and you have to buy gas. Uh, which one of those markets do you want to join? Do you want to join the one that has an excess of supplies they're trying to export or the one where people are, you know, desperately trying to buy things because they're in shortages? And there's a clear and obvious group that you would want to join if you're undecided. And even if you are decided, you might end up being in a situation where you're in economic turmoil of your own. Um, let's say you're a net importer of oil and gas and you kind of are on the side of like NATO, NATO and the UN, but you realize if you pick up the Chinese interbank system of communication, you can get oil and gas for 10 times cheaper than you could if you didn't do that. Hmm. And then there's this you know, significant economic pressure as well to you know, want to join with the other side. And I'm concerned that if we were to really go through with sanctions, we'd end up creating these perverse incentives for basically most of our allies to just dump the petrodollar, dump us. And, uh, make our lives a bit more difficult here in the West. Yeah, it absolutely. would definitely that make is, it harder. That Go definitely ahead. makes me nervous. And I mean, that is exactly the big fear of this is that we're pushing people away from the petrodollar. And don't forget, guys, I mean, we've covered this in episodes in the past. This, this is, like I said, alluded to earlier. This is why we go to war most of the time, in my opinion. Uh, we can loft all the evils of the regime that we went in there to, to get rid of. But there's plenty of, of bastards running countries that we don't seem to care about at all. 
It's only the ones that tend to go off the oil dollar that end up with American boots on the ground. Uh, and that is what we have replaced the gold standard with. That's why it's so important to American interest. And that's why the CIA comes and checks out your shit if you talk about getting off of it, because that literally is the only thing that keeps our dollar holding its value. And that is exactly correct. I mean, we went off the, the gold standard in 1971 and the petrodollar agreement was 1973 with Saudi Arabia. And, you know, our agreement then with all of OPEC was that they would sell oil and gas in the U.S. dollar and we would protect them both militarily and politically. And um, since they've done that, we have run a trade deficit. We've never run a, a trade surplus since then. And, you know, our main export is the dollar and there's this artificial demand for it because people have to use it to buy oil and gas. Um, but, you know, if this Eastern sphere of influence opens up where, you know, nothing is traded based on a US dollar standard, then people have no demand for the US dollar and they're not gonna export things to us for cheaper than they otherwise would. And, you know, we're already running through crazy inflation right now, depending on whether you believe the official numbers or if you, you know, have some common sense and experience and realize groceries are up like 30%. Um, no, it's, all, it's only like 6%, bro. <laughs> I don't want to get too conspiratorial. I mean, those are the official numbers. The government yeah, the official it's, numbers. it's only 6%. Well, it's, the official numbers are 7.9%, I believe now. Uh, they're basically at 8%. Uh, someone's going to quote me and be like, it's 7.95. I'm, I'm probably wrong. I'm sure I forgot. <laughs> Cancel for um, cheap. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, imagine how bad things get if... Um, if uh, if people just stop using the U.S. dollar, people just have no demand for it. You know, we'll actually have to make things here and sell them to people in excess to what we import. And that's going to be a huge shift away from what we're doing. And I think that's one of the biggest problems with U.S. politicians is they don't realize where we're weak and where we're strong. Um, they tend to treat everything like it's 1996. Um, and, you know, the U.S. is a hegemon. Everyone else is still kind of preparing themselves for wars, and there is really no Asia. Um, we're not in that anymore. Um, you know, there is competitors to SWIFT. There's two of them, actually. Um, China has SIPs. Uh, Russia has SPFS, which we can get into later, because I know these are like acronyms that mean nothing to people for, for the time being. But like, neither of these countries need us. And anyone in their sphere of influence, they don't need us anymore. Um, and so we need to switch from a vinegar uh, strategy to a strategy of honey. Um, right. Know, gotta attract the bees. Yeah, that's actually a really good. Uh, this is a complete size tangent, but I'm going to go down it. Um, I think that's a really good point to make and to expound on it that the world has changed, right? This is no longer the world of the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. This is not 1996, like you said. Hell, this isn't even 2002 or 2003 when we're rolling into Iraq. Like the world has changed significantly. And one of the things that um, I think a lot of people missed because it went right under their radar is when China and Russia got together and said essentially like the G9, right? The group, they call them just the group, but it's they're referring to the G9. They said, you guys no longer run the world and we're going to show you that. And that, you know, and I can't remember when that meeting was, but it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was within six months of the present day. Um, and we're really starting to see that because like you said, like Russia has been, they have cash reserves, right? They can absorb a lot of these sanctions going on, even though their rubles crashing. It's like there, there's still ways to absorb these very, very minor annoyances at the end of the day. Now, who knows, right? I mean, the world is completely unpredictable because I really did not think that you ever would have saw a, a full out 
clash of Russian troops rolling tank. You know, that, that was not something that was on my radar. I thought it's going to, we're going to get more saber rattling. Maybe you're going to get those two um, autonomous regions of Luhansk and Donetsk sucked into Russia, right? They're going to pull Crimea and kind of whittle away. But I definitely didn't think that you're going to see, you know, when we did that episode two, two weeks ago, I definitely didn't think that you're going to see Russian troops in the suburb, sur- suburbs of Kiev, you know, in two weeks. That was not on the radar. So the world's right. unpredictable. But there there has been a shift. And I think there's going to be a lot of really interesting repercussions that I don't think a lot of people are um, are really thinking about. I think one is going to be the increase of expenditure in military um, military operations and increase GDP of the Western allies. Which is right? great because like, I've always said we don't spend enough on military in this country. Well, it, so <laughs> it's, not, it's not so much us, but I think that you're going to see like this renewed because, I mean, Donald Trump was right when he called out NATO and said, you guys aren't pulling your fair share. Right. We all signed this treaty and said you're supposed to spend X amount of your GDP every year on your military. And the, and Europe was really lagging behind because America was subsidizing their defense. I think you're really going to see a, a, an increased renewal in um, Poland. I mean, Poland's been one of the only allies in NATO that's actually been meeting that because they understand, right? Poland has a really <laughs> nasty history of being a country and then disappearing and then to only reappear. And so Poland truly does understand the precariousness of the situation. But I think you're going to start seeing like France and Germany and UK, Italy, probably Romania, maybe some of the Baltics really step up their um, GDP expenditures towards military. And I think that's going to take us back a couple of decades, right, where we where we're in this really interesting position, where okay, maybe we can't just invade the Soviet Union because they have nukes and we have nukes, but we can certainly cripple them with spending. They can't keep up with this, right? And I wonder if that's going to be one of those unintended consequences of this invasion that you start to see massive um, increases of of defense budgets of the Western nations. See. I think the Western nations might think they can try that, but realistically, I don't think that can work. Um, Russia's economy is very different from most of Western Europe and the US. Uh, Russia is running a budget surplus. Uh, Russia, Russia's overnight lending rate is higher than the inflation rate in the country. I don't um, think I've ever even heard budget and surplus in the same sentence as American <laughs> Yeah, not since Clinton. He I didn't know that was, was even balanced. That, that one was a lie too, man, because he was just pulling money from Social Security and calling it part of his budget. And then, <laughs> Ponzi scheme. Right, right. I they didn't just realize pulled that. Money out. Yeah, it's, it's, it's absolute bullshit. I covered it in my Substack, flirtchief.substack.com. Hey, <laughs> get on it. <laughs> but, but realistically, you know, who can afford to actually increase their military spending? And the answer is Russia. Like Europe is in the middle of like a massive bond, oh, sorry, a money printing scheme to cover the bond sales they need to make to fund their governments because no one wants to buy their bonds, you know, and who would, you know, they have a negative overnight rate. Their bonds are basically 0%. You know, you can borrow money to buy a house in many European countries at a negative interest rate. Like that's how shitty the euro is as a currency. Nobody wants it. Like even the banks are like, here, just take it, take it, take it, please. And then you're paying back your loan and they're like, take some more of this away from us, please. We don't want it. And like, what, what sort of economy is that? And then there's the other thing to think about when it comes to military spending. 
you know how you see those charts of like um, U.S. education spending and they show you like the amount of teachers and the amount of administrators and the administrators has gone up like 30, 40, 50 percent and teachers is like flat. And, you know, the budget per child has gone up 30, 40, 50 times, whereas education outcomes are like flat. The U.S. military is the same, you know, maybe 10 percent of like our armed forces are actually people who either pull triggers or like, you know, drive a boat. Uh, I'm terrible. You know what the word is, like people who actually fly planes. Um, you know, we have HR, we have people behind desks, we have people just doing nothing for the most part. And, you know, our military spending is like way in excess of the rest of the world. But our effective military spending on like actual, you know, tanks, bullets, planes, uh, I don't know if we're really actually on par with the rest of the world. And then you look at like things like we spent $9,000 a chair in the Navy for a chair to furnish an office. I don't think Russia's doing that. I don't think China's doing that. So when you want to compare our charts of military spending, they might actually be spending more than us on like real actual armed forces infrastructure. And we're spending it on gender studies. Um, you know, we're spending it on these uh, assessments and classes where we're teaching our, our soldiers about implicit racial bias. You know, I mean, I don't think that's really effective for comparing our, our, our armed forces. We might already be behind. We just don't know it. So you you mean to tell me worthless in my <laughs> core. You mean to tell me that you think the the rich diversity within our military is not going to overwhelm Russia? Uh, unfortunately, we just don't have enough rainbow flags for it. Really, <laughs> we just, just got to buy one more. <laughs> really, the like rainbow the, uh, uh, camo patterns didn't test very well in the field. Did, did not do well. I really like the meme where it's like when when um, when American when like diversified american troops see a bunch of heterosexual white males get out of the russian attack helicopter and they're, they're, they're screaming for their lives and so i think you i think you have a really good point um so i'm, I'm glad you interesting. That I, up. I actually have not even thought that deeply about that but you're you're right i mean our military is so crazy robust but it's become the same kind of bureaucratic nightmare that our entire government is where like you said when there's ten thousand dollars a pop for a hammer uh, there's somebody probably getting a pretty decent payout somewhere in there as well, where that's not all actually even going straight to a military uh, or to bettering our military, but rather to fattening somebody's pockets who's connected. Um, that's a scary thought, too, to to see the the mortality of our own military come up against us, especially with one uh, uh, like Russia, which maybe their numbers not as high. But we know those guys have been uh, have been involved around the world for a good while. It's not like they're out of practice. Yeah, most definitely. And, you know, as, uh, you know, libertarians or people on like this section of the political spectrum, uh, you know, obviously our great, one of our great opponents is decreasing military spending. But I think people also take it for granted and they just assume, oh, we spend so much more than everyone else. Of course, we're invincible. And like, really, the <laughs> truth is like, we're actually very vulnerable and we're also spending a lot of money. It's like the worst combination, you know, because yeah, if we yeah. are going to outspend people, it'd be nice if we were like, outnumbered them like 90 to one in like military jets or whatever, but we, we might not, we really right. might not. Yeah. I, I don't know. I and when you really, I mean, if you really think deeply about it, the, what is truly the factor that makes it impossible to invade America, it's not anything our military has got going on. Sure. It's a big deterrent, but it's the fact that we have so many Americans that are armed better than a lot of militaries around the world are. And if you, you could potentially theoretically invade America, but you couldn't occupy it for any kind of reasonable amount of time. You couldn't really, you'd have to basically scorched earth the entire population and try to repopulate it with your people uh, to ever really have any hope of actually taking American soil in my mind. 
there's those two oceans too. That helps. Yeah. Yeah. Most definitely. Most definitely. And, you know, so if we play these games where we try to outspend them, I don't think it's going to work out. And, you know, especially if we really try to segment the world into two separate spheres of, of spending and consumption, which mm-hmm. I think is what the West thinks that they can do right now. And, you know, you had mentioned um, Trump giving Europe a hard time about not keeping up with their military spending. And, you know, that also usually gets associated with a, um, a speech from Trump that he's giving NATO allies where he's harassing Germany about buying all of their natural gas from Europe and uh, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, this is the other issue with sanctions as well. And I don't think there is as much cohesion among Europe as people think in terms of demand for these sanctions. Um, you know, we have England saying like, hey, let's do these sanctions, but uh, an, an issue, and I'll touch on the whole ruble dropping here. Um, BP has, uh, I, th- I think like 20% of their exposure is in Russian oil fields. Um, what happens if we cut off Russia from England or from the SWIFT system? BP just has to lose out on all of those assets. I mean, I think in England alone, they have like $300 billion worth of exposure to Russia. How much exposure do Russian investors have into England? Uh, it's a lot less than that. Um, and so when we talk about how much money gets lost and how many assets get lost, because, um, you know, all of BP's assets in Russia, if the SWIFT sanctions happen, they don't just disappear. They don't just burst into flames. Like someone is going to take custody of them in Russia in some form or manner, um, whether it's some sort of like... Um, fire sale from BP where BP sells it for extremely cheap to whoever is there in Russia, or whether it's just something that BP just has to leave behind, which I, I, I don't think that'd be the case. I expect it to be a fire sale, but someone's going to get it for a steal and someone's going to have these productive assets that, you know, they got for a steal. They can make money off of them. They can use to sell into Russia or to whoever, and they can also afford to sell it a much cheaper uh, dollar per barrel than what BP might have at their initial entry point. And so, you know, you end up creating this, handover of assets, which is going to work in Russia's favor in general, um, just because Russia has a lot less assets, the Russian companies have a lot less assets deployed in these countries that would be enacting these sanctions. And um, when we talk about the ruble falling, why is that? I think that's a lot of people who are concerned that like, oh, hey, these sanctions are going to happen. I need to get whatever investments I might have in Russia out of Russia. Um, and so, you know, that ultimately the last transaction in that is someone selling ruble and buying whatever currency it is they need to get. Um, so you might be seeing some of the smart money leaving at the first sign of any sort of, um, you know, armed conflict just because there's, okay, hey, there's this risk of sanctions and my money being trapped over there forever. And so people are willing to sell at a discount and take 70% um, just to avoid the potential risk of taking 0% if there is a sanction. Um, so, you know, people are like tap dancing a lot. I know Biden was celebrating like, oh, the ruble's down like 12% or whatever. And it's like, uh, you know, it's way too early to be making that sort of celebration. About that. Didn't it, didn't it bounce back up 7% before the end of the day after he said that? Yeah. Yeah. I think some people started becoming a bit less concerned that sanctions could happen because they're, they're I don't think they're possible if you're like an intelligent person on the wet in the Western side, mm-hmm. trying to figure out what the outcomes are going to be. It's, uh, you guys ever seen this movie, the four lions, it's this British movie about these uh, Pakistanis who are uh, creating a terrorist attack in they're trying to decide where they're going to attack to um, 
uh, get the most public support behind them. And one of them is like, we're going to bomb Barclay the Stadium. Oh, yeah, he's going to we're going to bomb the mosque and we're going to radicalize the moderates and they're all going to join us. And then um, his example was punching himself in the face and he's just going to get so angry that he'd overcome them in the fight. And like that is our strategy right now with these sanctions. <laughs> uh, you know, we're Muslims trying to bomb the mosque in the hope that it's going to work in our favor. And it just it isn't it isn't at all. And I wish leadership was taking a more reasoned approach to this. How much yeah. do you think it plays into this of us being uh, a country that goes through an election process where when you have somebody like a Vladimir Putin at the helm, he can plan out these long term strategies. He knows that if this goes south and they do uh, shut down his economy from the Western world, then he just shifts over. They know that they are a surplus economy, like you said. So they worst case scenario, you consume your own goods for a while and do and stay afloat on that so that you're not uh, starving or running out of out of energy in your own country. Um, and they have the ability to do that. And that's another issue is, I mean, we don't have the ability to do that. We, it would take so much for us to turn on the factories again. Uh, just the, the infrastructure alone is a huge barrier, but then also the skilled labor. I mean, how many people have been doing that for years and years and their jobs passed down from fathers to sons in those countries that know how to do those jobs. Uh, and how many of those gaps do we have within our own economy from being such a consumeristic base? Um, but like I said, he can, he can, purse that out, see that future and understand that if it does eventually get to the point where he can even turn the American dollar into a negative and their market becomes a superior market being the, the uh, producer, those sanctions are a hell of a lot more effective on us if they turn them around. Uh, whereas here in, in these democratic systems, we have these leaders who are way more concerned with the next two years. Elections are coming up. I've got to be the president again. Oh, I need to take a strong stance. I can't seem weak. So it's, ah, it's sanctions and it's saber rattling and these, these stupid short-sighted ideas uh, simply because our politicians are so worried about the next election rather than the health of the country. That is a fair point because there are certain, I would say, economic and political things you can do that might take 10 or 15 years to pay off. And why would you give that to your political enemies? Um, which is kind of, I think, how people think here in the U.S., is, you know, at some point we might lose the election. Why do I really want to build up the economy for something that might pay off in four years if I'm just going to give it to the next person? And you, you can see that in the way some people talk about elections where, um, you know, like the market was going up when Trump was in and they were like, this is because of Obama. And like both both sides were kind of like dumb on that art, that thing. <laughs> you know, it's... <sighs> Actually, let me let me pivot. I'm not going to talk about that. It just it gets on my nerves a little bit. But like, no, you are right, though. It's in, it's infuriating when and not even that I'm the most literate economic person in the world, but I have a better understanding than most people. And, and when people go like, well, the economy is good or bad because of the guy on my team, that's the president. It's like, do you have any idea how complex economics are? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, to your point where you're talking about, you know, Putin can be in power for two decades and who knows how long. And he can do something and reap the benefit from it and not have to worry about like the politics of it, how it looks, who it helps in election, who it doesn't. Um, you know, we've got a lot of like really horrible problems going on that actually need someone to take a 10 or 20 year view on it. And no one here in the U S is willing or capable of doing that. And things are just going to keep kind of going worse and worse and worse for us because of this kind of political reality that you're speaking about but no one's going to give their political opponents like a gift. Like, you know, Jimmy Carter gave Reagan a gift in Paul Volcker. 
Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, he was a one-term president. You know, it looked terrible for him because he couldn't quite balance the budget like he said he wanted to. But he at least got sensible interest rate policy in, but it didn't kick in until like the late 80s. And um, yeah, he also uh, he also gave Reagan the uh, Iranian hostage win too because they had <laughs> you know he he had negotiated the release and oh it just so happens that that day comes you know a few days after Reagan becomes president and so Reagan gets to say look at me I'm a, I'm a no nonsense president I freed the hostages we had you know two years of <laughs> bullshit under under Carter yeah that's um. Really good points, guys. I think this is, it's, it's had my mind turning. And I think one thing that I, uh, that I do want to stress is that I think that spe- specifically Americans and just the West in general, we've overestimated our influence and our ability to actually affect these current events, like these, glo- these geopolitical moves, right? Like everyone's going to say like, oh, well, we could stop Ukraine. We could stop Russia if we wanted to. But okay, do you really want to deploy American troops to this? And at the end of the day, like nobody, Americans, Western Europeans, nobody's really all that interested in going to Ukraine and dying to make sure that Ukraine's sovereignty is protected. So now we're relegated to these sanctions. But like you said, Europe's not even a unified front on it, right? Like I've already heard all of these different concessions that, um, certain uh, certain uh, countries are asking for, right? Italy in the sanctions was like, well, I know that we'd like to ban imports into Russia, but can we have like a little carve out for luxury cars? Because we'd like to still, we'd like to still sell them luxury cars. And it turns out Belgium, the Kremlin has a, a decent market for all these Italian. You know, and it's like Belgium with diamonds. There's, there's been all of these, there's been all of these little, little pieces where they're like, okay, cool. Let's sanction Russia. However, can I please have my concession? So when you add all of those up, it's really, it, it's it's your it's your lip service, right? It's it's pretty. It's a toothless action, and I think that this is kind of the wake up call, though, for a lot of people who have been kidding themselves about American homogeny around the globe and the old power structure that has been in place since World War II. Those days are, are dead. Russia clearly does not care what the West does because if they did, they wouldn't roll troops into Ukraine, right? That there's, there's this very realistic, I, I guess, like awakening or coming to Jesus moment that we're going to have to deal with as, 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 Western, as Western people, as Americans, because our, our ability to influence these things short of hot wars has definitely decreased, right? People don't care. Russia doesn't care. China doesn't care because they're fine without us. But the real question is, are we fine without them? And Russia has seen this experiment play out a couple of times of the nuclear deterrent. They've seen how we we treat guys who give up those nukes. We go right in there and, and do it. But they've seen that we're scared shitless of somebody, even if they don't have a strong military. And we could probably at least keep the fallout in that region. We still don't like to mess with nukes. And so, yeah, well, I mean, at yeah, that point, it's at, like, why are they scared of a hot war either? <laughs> yeah, I mean, look at what Putin said day one. He said, hey, anybody who wants to meddle in this is going to experience something that you've never experienced in your history, right? We've, the West has experienced devastating wars. They've experienced ground wars. They've experienced millions of men lost over a square mile of land that changed no trajectory of the entire course of the war. What the West hasn't experienced are nuclear bombs falling on the ground. Um, and I think, and I'm not saying that 
Putin's going to nuke us or anything like that. But I think you have to read into his words with a little bit of severity and take it at face value. If he's saying, and, and to be fair, and I'm not here to apologize for Putin or Russia or any of the actions, I think that it's not unreasonable if like, let's say there's this, let's say there's, there's a border dispute between Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, and Mexico, right? And parts of New Mexico and Texas say, hey, I think we're going to go to Mexico. And the United States is like, the fuck you are. And then Mexico is, you know, there's all of this skirmishing in. And then something actually pops off. You wouldn't want to see Russia come in and be like, hey, New Mexico, we're here to help you. <laughs> or, you know, you wouldn't want to see that. And I think that everybody can understand that when you start meddling in things, especially thousands of miles from your immediate borders and your direct sphere of influences, it starts to shift the, the name of the game a little bit, right? And I think that it's easy for us sitting in America to be like, well, why wouldn't we want to intervene in Ukraine? And why would Russia be so opposed? But it's like, would you like Russia or China getting involved in a Mexican-American dispute, right? Oh, hey, Mexico, would you like some arms? Hey, would you like some money? Perfect. New Mexico, Texas, you used to own those. Arizona, Southern California, looking pretty good right now. Yeah, like we would reject that outright. And so I think it's just important to step back and look at it from that 30,000 foot view. Like these things, even though they're pretty radical, they're not all of that unpredictable or insane when you look at the whole um, context of it. Yeah, especially when you consider how long we've been backing them into a corner. I mean, you got to look at this. It's our favorite game to play on this podcast of let's think about if we were the other guy. And it's the same thing we make arguments for all the time. When you're looking at uh, policies you support in, in the U.S. government, you have to think about it. I know you don't like those guys that, that wear the other team color when it's time to vote for a president, but think about what if they were enforcing the same kind of uh, infringements on the way you live your life that you're infringing on them. And if you wouldn't like them doing that, then maybe it's a bad idea. And it's the same thing here with Russia. I mean, we, we saw the Soviet Union collapses. We signed treaties with them saying that we will leave the Soviet Union out of NATO. And then we start nabbing up all these former Soviet Union territories into NATO. No problem. We start flirting with Ukraine even as potentially going in someday. Um, they push back on that. We don't, we say no, no dice. They try to annex areas that are, have taken referendums and voted that they want to be part of Russia. That's what this Donbass region is. That's why they had the, uh, the decision to recognize their independence is because they kind of acted like they wanted to be part of Russia again. And what do we do? To, is it, is it one of those though, where it's like the Crimean re referendum where it's like 104% of the population turned out to vote just to, just to be the devil's advocate against that. Like, is it really, is this really democracy and self-determination going on? Or I just have to point that out. Sorry. Yeah, that's that's perfectly fair. That's perfectly fair. And I don't, I would be dishonest to say I would put my mortgage on saying yes to that. <laughs> yeah. Imagine if the 2020 elections had also included like referendums for certain states to leave. And, you know, those elections are already contested enough. Um, you know, looking at the, the, the mysterious lines in the middle of the night, blah, 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 blah. But like, uh, imagine then if let's say uh, Maine votes to join Canada because they love Trudeau 
And all of a sudden there's like some sort of like hot war where Canada's like, well, you know, Maine said they wanted to join in the 2020 election. So we've just moved in to get rid of the Nazis who said America is better. <laughs> you know, we, just had to, <laughs> we had to get rid of them. And uh, all of a sudden, how would we treat that? Um, I think we would probably be willing to let anyone come in and fight Canada. I mean, I know I would if someone wanted to come in and like restore the borders um, election or not. Like, I don't think that's the way things are supposed to go. And so when we talk about, you know, Russia coming into Ukraine, um, both Crimea and the Donbass, um, personally, I don't view what Russia is doing as ethical. Even if there was an election, it doesn't, it doesn't look to be ethical to me at all. And, There's a big difference you know, between ethical and understandable. Though, majority you know? rule. Like, oh. do, do you understand what I'm saying? It's like, I, I agree. It's absolute bullshit that they're doing this. But even like if you want to exclude your ethics, if you look at it in the greater geopolitical landscape, it's not outrageous what they're I mean, it is outrageous. You, I, I'm, I need to use my words better. It's <laughs> it's. Incensed. It's understandable, <laughs> you know. Right. It, it's it, an aggressive it, move, but it's not an unforeseen move. It's not completely out of the the realm of of logical thinking for them to do this. Um, and again, it comes back to kind of that idea I was talking about earlier. Right, right, right. Hey, from basically every government involved in every one of these conflicts for the entire history of mankind, uh, there's bad guys on both sides run shit. Um, but yeah, you. I mean, you have to understand that they they have always seen the world not as Russia's part of Europe. They see Russia and they see the West. And from what they've seen, they have made plenty of concessions to the West over the years. And the West has done nothing but step over those lines that they agreed to, to stand behind and continually move towards Russian borders and continually taken Russian territories and played proxy wars with areas that Russia was happy to control so that we could have control of them and force them to trade in our dollars so that they have to support our economy that's based on absolutely nothing. And they're finally at the point where this is at their border. Ukraine is the edge of their territory. And they finally snapped and said, fuck this, man, we got to do something. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, in a lot of ways, you could view this in, you know, the way we view Libya or Syria where like the U.S. was heavily intervening into countries that were, uh, I'd say, adjacent to Russia, Russia-friendly. They traded with Russia. They're, I don't know if you call them allies, but they were, they were close enough to Russia. And here we are intervening into the politics of these countries um, just because we feel like we don't like who's in charge. Um, you know, and now often the- also to point out democratically elected leaders in plenty of those cases. Yeah, most definitely. And, you know, now here the shoe is kind of on the other foot where Russia is saying like, hey, look, I want to intervene in this country. Do we have any sort of moral authority? Do we have like, uh, you know, any is anything on our side after our actions over the last 20 or 30 years? No, not at all. Um, and, you know, in the same way that like, obviously I oppose most Middle Eastern wars, I'm sure y'all did too. And a lot of other people, you know, this isn't anything new to anyone. Um, in that case, you know, it would have been ethical for someone to defend those countries from us. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, here we are in this situation where in my mind, I feel like it's ethical for someone to defend Ukraine from Russia. But like, do we have the moral authority to do that? No, we don't. We <laughs> lost it. We lost it a long time ago with our own actions. Um, so, yeah, I have like my personal ethics, but like I also know where we stand and um, it's not on firm ground. Yeah, yeah you, you make really good points. Yeah. And it is. And I mean, 
to put it in perspective, right? We're trying to oust the neo-Nazis. They got weapons of mass destruction. It's really, mm-hmm. it's really the same thing, you know. It's these, it's these radically unfounded claims as an excuse to go in there. And so, I mean, so, so I guess the next question is just following up on that. Do you think that there should be an intervention in Ukraine? Do you think that you think that we should see Amer- American troops, Western troops? Do you think that this is? Do you think this is ample reason to deploy? people into harm's way and potentially spark world war three because now you've got all the good you know it's almost like a korea of the 1950s right you have all of these players involved and the only thing that stopped it from being world war three was nuclear weapons arguably um do you do you do you re-enter that is it have you ever seen the movie um, Enter the Spider-Verse um, where with Miles Morales as Spider-Man and like there's a bunch of other Spider-Man from a bunch of different multiverses who all come in and they've all lived different lives and whatnot. And what there's one where Peter Parker dies. There's one where he doesn't blah, 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 blah. We live in the multiverse where Peter Parker died. There's, there's another one where Peter Parker is the hero and he's saving everyone and like, yeah, intervention, let's do this. We don't live in that one. Like, yeah, it's right. <laughs> It's absolutely right for Spider-Man to exist and save all the people from shit, but we, we're just not there. He's dead. So we have to like deal with what we've got. And like, we just don't have the ability to intervene. Like we don't. And um, you know, the things we do have consequences and we've had a foreign policy for the past 20, 30, 40, 50 years, as well as a fiscal policy that has put us in a situation where we don't have the ability to actually intervene. Um, and it is what it is. As much as like my personal ethics feel like we should be there, we can't. We just we just don't have the ability. We don't have the moral authority. Our country doesn't even have the cohesion to do it. No. Um, you know, if we want to talk about these vaccine mandates and issues, like how many people in the U.S. even want to follow any orders from the U.S. Armed Forces? How many people want to join up and like be part of that? Most of the people who would be on the ground probably feel some sort of way about like taking orders from this chain of command as it exists. I mean, like there was this huge demoralization after Afghanistan, and I would say it's been ongoing for the past 10 years. Like what, what, what cohesion do we have of our armed forces to even have, like motivate people to want to participate? Like I, I imagine most everyone who'd be over there would just be like waiting to get their papers so they can go back home and like drive their, their Hellcat or whatever the fuck they bought with their money. Like it just, <laughs> there, there's, there's nothing there spiritually that's pulling us into that war. Yeah, and the the potential repercussions of it as well. I mean, this is the absolute worst case scenario for mankind is exactly what we're trying to kind of setting up here. If you go into a hot war with Russia and nukes enter the the air, we're looking at, I mean, potentially human extinction, if not a great culling of of our civilization. Going back to the Stone Age, we're going to have people looking at uh, at, uh, all of our buildings that do survive over thousands of years like the great pyramids now and like we don't know who the fuck built these but <laughs> it's wild that this stuff's here and who god knows what happened as we reinvent the wheel along the way yeah yeah for real uh, there'd be nothing left in my city except for the few malls that are built out of granite <laughs> a few of those like poking out we of think the there's some kind of burial chamber for for some sort of pharaoh his, his name was Dillard's. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I quite like that one. 
Uh, but yeah, that's that's exactly. I mean, there's plenty of reasons morally that we don't have a leg to stand on to to go in hot to this in defense of Ukraine. Uh, but there's also just the repercussions like that could come from it that are an absolute fucking nightmare. And that alone should be enough of a deterrent that that should be in our politicians' ears to where they shouldn't be poking the bear on this. Um, I think that I probably am a little more apt to believe that that referendum did exist, that they wanted to go back into Russia specifically because we uh, chose to fund a coup immediately after that and make sure that it was impossible for that to happen. Um, but I, I mean, you look at this from the Russian perspective, there's not much in their eyes. They see this as an area that the West stole from them anyway. Uh, so they don't really have any intention of, of listening to our lofty uh, moral reasons why Ukraine needs to be free, you know. And they played the, the same card we did in the same way we go, hey, Ukraine's an independent state. They go, yeah, these two spots, too, that we're about to take back. Those are independent states. So just so you guys know, we are recognizing their independence. So if you don't recognize it, that's you guys not recognizing somebody's independence, not us. It's, it's interesting, though, because if you extend their logic all the way, I mean, technically, they have a right to like East Germany, don't they? They have a right to Poland. Um, you know, where would this end? You know, where is a point where they say like, oh, well, when we said that, we only meant this one specific satellite state. We didn't mean Kazakhstan or Kyrgyzstan. No, 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 we're not going there. Um, like I like the logic that they have placed forward. If we allow it, it allows for basically every single country from the USSR to be um, swallowed up in the same way if they just have, you know, an election in the in the country. And um I don't know how we should be feeling about the legitimacy of this in general. Um, I don't want to compare it to the Sudetenland and like, you know, the invasion of the yeah. Rhineland or anything, because it's not the same. But, They're not the same. Um, you know, there there is some logic that could be extended if we allowed it. And I, I don't know what we're going to do. Yeah. And to, to build on that, because history has shown us there's no appeasing crocodiles. Right. And that's and that was that's my big because I don't think this is the sedate land. Right. I don't think that this is um, this do or die moment. Right. However, I think that there's a lot of parallels to it because what ends up, when what ends up happening is the messages are seen around the world. Right. Hitler chews up the sedate land or it's technically he's given the sedate land in this last ditch effort to try to avert war because Europe doesn't have the stomach for it. And then he's like, actually, I'll just have all of Czechoslovakia for breakfast mm -hmm. and nothing happens. Right. And that is. And then at that point, you have your you you have your marching orders, essentially. Right. The West has no stomach for this. Right. And to, to build on that, when 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 the German forces moved back into the demilitarized zone, which was all Lorraine, Right. Because that is one of those contested areas that um, right between Germany and France. Right. And it's kind of it's West. It's Eastern France, Western Germany. And it's traded hands over history, right? It was French for a long time, then it was German for a long time, then the French took it back, and then after the Franco-Prussian War, you know, there's all of these, there's all this switching of this land, but they demilitarized that. And when they moved in there, all of the generals were given very explicit orders, right? If you meet any sort of resistance, fall back, right? We're, we're, not, we're not going to open war over the sedate land, or sorry, Alsace-Lorraine, but... Let's see if we can just slide on in there and see what they do. You know, it's a demilitarized zone. What are they going to do if we militarize it? 
and they slide on in there and nothing happens. And so then at that point you say, okay, perfect. Now I know how to operate with all of these future incursions. And I think that where you do see the similarities is the precedence that will be set. Okay, cool. I can roll into Ukraine. What are they going to do? Sanction me? Fuck it. I'll be fine. Oh, Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia. You guys, you guys have been you, the prodigal son. Time to come back home, right? You, you need to come back into the fold. Mm-hmm. Also, what do you, what are we experiencing? What's, what's China thinking about this, right? You can't forget that there's another country that has its eyes on reunification, quote unquote, of Taiwan. I like to call it what, you know, it's like West, or yeah, sorry, Western Taiwan would like to try to reunify, reunify Eastern Taiwan, but you can't be, you can't be blind and dumb to the implications that they're seeing, right? Oh, well, and poor Taiwan, I'm sure they're shitting their pants right now. Like, oh, fuck. The only thing they're going to do if, if China invades us is sanctions. Like, we're screwed. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, China's uh, ambitions, they expand a lot further than Taiwan as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they've got that whole 10 dash line uh, going out to the East China Sea. Uh, I know they used to have certain lands in um, Russia that are no longer theirs. Uh, I mean, what about Mongolia? Do they view that as something they want to take? Um, there was a little while where China occupied North Vietnam. Does China have any interest in that? Um, what about that entire Sino Peninsula, um, the Philippines? Do we, as the U.S., are we projecting that we are going to defend any of these places at all? Or are we projecting that we will allow China to use the exact same logic? Um, you know, they could say like, oh, well, you know, at some point during the, the, the Qing dynasty or whichever one, you know, Mongolia was part of uh, Northern Xi'an, which we considered ours. Um, and, you know, they've already proposed so many arguments like this all the time. You know, the ones about Hong Kong, about Taiwan. Um, they could make one up about like good bits of uh, the parts of Asia that are to the west of China, uh, like the Turkmenistan and whatnot, places that were part of the Silk Road where China had settlements at some point in like the, the year 100 BC. Um, <laughs> I, I or the year uh, 6025 in the Chinese calendar. Oh, yeah. Solid point, right? This is recent history for them. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I don't know how far it goes. And I, again, with China, I don't see us as having like neither the moral authority nor the the capability nor the financial and fiscal ability to really deploy any sort of meaningful defense. So Um, this one just popped in my head because we don't have the moral ground to stand on because we can't really sanction them out of it. And because we know the nuclear deterrent is the best way to keep a world power out of your country, are we supposed to just like start shipping nukes out to all these other third world countries and just make sure that we freeze all the lines tomorrow because everybody has nuclear capability? I mean, it's not the worst idea in the world. (laughs) It might honestly, in an auto, I mean, you definitely, uh, you raise the ceiling of potential disaster, but you might lower the floor of hot wars. Yeah, I mean, what if we told Russia that we are giving Zelensky control of 500 nukes tomorrow? Yeah, it'd be the end of this invasion pretty quick. Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, there might be that some or, or absolute escalation, or right, or the end of mankind. <laughs> Absolutely. Either, either way, two. Matthew, the point is the conflict's over in a year. <laughs> you know, one thing I've always learned in sales and negotiation is that you have to be willing to lose and lose hard before you can actually win any sort of negotiation. And uh, if we had the stones for it, I say that actually, every time I go to the strip club. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, hold on. The VIP is not 500. It's 300 or I'm walking away. <laughs> oh, oh. Man. But yeah, if we had the stones to actually like put the balls on the table and say, this is it, Russia, this is what we want. Um, maybe they'd back off. And like, I don't think anyone would believe it if this administration did it. Because um, I mean, first of all, you wouldn't want Biden saying that you'd probably want uh, who's in his cabinet who actually like have some gravitas? Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Is he in the? Cab- he's not he's in the cabinet. cabinet. No. Yeah, he's not, he's not. I was I just trying to think of a strong man. Actually, I don't know who would actually carry any weight. I mean, who's the Secretary of State? I should know this, but and I mean, this has been something. They're a bunch of very issue. unimportant, uninspiring people. Is the point? Yeah. And it's a, it's been an issue a long time dealing with Russia anyway because. Putin understands that concept that Putin's going to be around a lot longer than the president is as well. And he said that much on several occasions. He's like, you know, how do you feel about the this certain regime that's kind of coming down on Russia? He's like, oh, we'll wait four years and then we'll do whatever the fuck we want. Honestly, it's it's a weakness. And, you know, there is some benefit to having the benevolent monarchy. Uh, If you happen to get lucky and have a a good king, Um, it doesn't last long. But when you get it, it's kind of unstoppable. Yeah, you're crossing your finger for that one perfect lifetime of a person. And it's hard to get two in a row even, but there is that that mobility is there for sure. Most definitely. Because, I mean, Russia, if anything, they've at least got competency competency at the leadership. You know, I mean, it's kind of rare you get someone who speaks like multiple different languages, reads Latin, um, you know, multiple black belt, has been an intelligence officer for decades, has all sorts of experience like within the useful sphere um and you know you have someone like that leading you for a while i mean that's great i would are you trying to imply that that resume is more impressive than joe biden's (laughs) i don't know 50 years of like i don't know sending crack pipes to black people i was about to say no 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 it's throwing black people in jail for having crack pipes that's what (laughs) i was gonna say i I I bet Putin has uh, definitely thrown more africans in jail than uh african descent people in jail than uh mr putin has (laughs) <laughs> yeah, honestly but it, it's it's sad because like i want to think about like um you know how are we qualified to lead and do we have anyone there who i feel is like uh, like you want to feel like whoever's there has like so high of a level of competency that you couldn't have a good conversation with them without looking like an idiot yourself and this is the exact argument i have uh to bring it to a sports metaphor as i like to do this is what makes me so sad as a Cowboys fan to have McCarthy. When you ask like a, a Sean McVay, uh, what did you think about this play? He's like, oh, well, in 1996, when the Steelers played San Francisco in the second round of the playoffs, they ran this play in the third quarter. And when you ask a guy like McCarthy that we have at the helm, it's like, well, you know, I'm going to watch the film, really try to get our head on the grindstone, and then we're going to try to be better next week. And you're like, there's only 32 of these jobs. Shouldn't they all be just obscenely intelligent human beings in charge? Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's one thing with this country and the uh, admiration of expertise. Like when someone is actually a real expert, they can blow you away within like three minutes of conversation. 
uh, just the way they answer even like one question and you're like, God damn, it, right. it's like being a caveman and watching your first shooting star and you're down there on the ground like, boonga, boonga. like that's what you <laughs> want from your experts. You want there to just be like, you know, just glowing intelligence in every single conversation that you can't even, you can't fathom. Um, and, you know, when you find people like that, you keep them in your life. And if anything, when you run into a president, you should want them to be able to do that to you, whether they're, you know, completely evil and just trying to annihilate the country, I still want to not be able to keep up with them. God, that's um, no and, joke. You know, and I don't know if y'all listened to, to Biden's address of the situation. <laughs> he was on a Biden curve, did pretty well. They gave him plenty of talking pills <laughs> and he was focused and talking into the camera, but he definitely like, you could see where he gets lost in the script and he says the exact same lines two or three times and circles back to it. And it's like, this is Oops. the guy, this is the man who might lead us into World War III is this guy who can't even read the script from one into another in five minutes. He's got to double back, <laughs> lose himself. And I will say not that many stutters, which is super impressive at this point for Joe Biden. On the, on the Biden curve, he did okay. But let's not forget what Barack Obama said about Joe Biden, right? He said, never underestimate his ability to fuck things up. <laughs> <laughs> Like even like even Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, right? And I have I don't have all that much respect for those people, but they were aware of the shortcomings of Joe Biden and why he should probably not be president. And if it wasn't for the orange man and giving us something to rally against, you know, you probably wouldn't see that. But I know Logan said this in the past, but could you imagine having to like be Vladimir Zelensky and have to like call the United States? And this is who you have to converse with. It's like, Joe, please, like, I'm begging you, keep up. Like, this is like, yeah, I need what's X, the, Y, What's the betting line that, Bo, that Biden even knew Zelensky was the president of Ukraine like three months ago? You think he had that ready? If you asked him that randomly, uh, do you think he had that information at his fingertips? I don't know. I mean, to be fair, Biden had been involved in Ukraine. You know, you know what? Whole... That's actually a good point because he was kind of <laughs> instrumental in running that whole coup. So maybe, you know, it's like he has he has had his fingers there. His son did sit on the board of Gazprom um, or whatever that company is. But well, we just got done talking about how experts are needed in fields. And when you find somebody as intelligent as his uh, a Biden child, you, as, you as Hunter Biden, no of doubt, reins, you know, of course, of course, man. And it's it's just really depressing. And, you know, like my dad had Alzheimer's and watching him kind of you know, slowly devolved, there became a point where you can't ask him dad questions because they just, mm -hmm. the conversation isn't there anymore. And you see the same thing with Biden, even during like his campaign. I don't know how people like, it's, I don't know how his family syndrome. Like, no, like not even the people voting because like you know, people don't watch TV, but like his family and loved ones, you know, like how could they be all right and just be like, oh yeah, no, put that in the, the Oval Office. Like, I remember we had to take away my dad's car keys once. And that was like really sad. Like, I can't imagine like that moment being like, my dad needs to run this country. Like never in a million years would I have ever thought that. And you, you listen to Biden talk and, you know, it's very familiar to me. Like I, uh, you know, I've been through it before. I mean, you watch someone devolve like this and maybe there was a time when Biden was like extremely competent, but it's just, it's not here anymore. And it's just sad that all of these people like put him in there, like just so that they could profit. Like I'm willing to bet that's what his family is doing. Like they're just it is elder abuse. 
Yeah, like his family are probably just running it behind the scenes with his name and they're, you know, using the same schemes to like get money from people to, you know, make sure certain um, legislation goes through, certain things get signed or certain people get appointed to certain places. And they're just, they're just pillaging his, his soon to be corpse, I guess, you know, it's just, ah, and, you know, here we are all participating in it as a country, like 81 million votes, right? And uh, whether it's a legitimate or not vote count, there were plenty of people. I, I know plenty of people who voted for him. Sure. I, I do. And, um, you know, they've all managed to participate in this, uh, probably just because of, you know, media buyout for the most part. Like, they're not really paying attention. And, you know, how complicit was the media in also abusing this elder? Like, how much money did they accept from interested parties to just profit off of this instead of just saying, like, the truth? Like, hey, this guy is demented. We need someone. This is an important time in our lives. You know, 2020. Orange man was bad. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that I, was the response. I think you're forgetting exactly how bad Kamala tested in the primaries. They couldn't. <laughs> they had to have Joe. <laughs> Yeah, march her out I there mean, yeah kamala is like a different sort man but yeah uh, what are you gonna say matt go for it oh i was gonna say i think that you're on to something that's really interesting where you look at you know and there's always that there's that saying right hard times make strong men strong men make good times good men or good times make weak men weak men make hard times when you look if you were to take like the leaders of america canada france and put them side by side would you look at that and be like, that's an all-star lineup. Those are strong men. Those are people that I want to lead our country and, and kind of dictate the Western uh, agenda. When you look at, <laughs> if you look at Macron, Trudeau, and Joe Biden, that does not ooze masculinity. That does not ooze confidence, right? That does not even ooze competence, would it would it would it oozes is, is a bunch something what it oozes is a bunch of damn it logan would it <laughs> sorry <laughs> threw you off of that one hey, we'll, we'll let you finish your point matt i, I feel you but i imagine the audience wants to hear it all <laughs> i don't even know if i can finish it now <laughs> Damn uh, you it. can, man. But like, it, it's sad because like, even looking around in the West in general, um, I don't really see it. Like maybe Boris Johnson is as close as it gets. And even then, I'm just kind of like, uh, I mean, like, maybe uh, Angela Merkel when she was in, like maybe. Right. And, and, but now we're having to reach, right. You don't have those. And I mean, don't get me wrong. Winston Churchill was not a perfect historical figure. However, he was a bulldog of a human being, right? Like he's, he's been, he had already been ashamed and kicked out of the Navy um, for, for that, that complete botching of the Dardanelles, which wasn't entirely his fault, but somebody has got to, someone's got to get fired when you don't win the, when, when you don't take your objectives. Right. But like, that is a bulldog of a human being that on the other side, as soon as like he comes to power the same day that, that France is falling, and surrendering, right? There's this really interesting 40 day window between his rise of power and the fall of France. And you, and you have this like crazy dynamic going on between the, the destruction of one country, a new prime minister, the other, and he rose up and he was a bulldog of a person, right? Like that is somebody that you could look to in wartime and be like, this is a leader, right? Like his, even though he had kind of had that, that weird, 
high-pitched voice, right? That whole, we will fight them on the beaches. We will, you know, it's like, that is an inspiring thing for, for Englanders at that time, especially now that England is standing alone. But you don't have that same, you don't have that same gravitas of leaders. Even, I mean, and don't get me wrong, like Franklin Roosevelt, Franklin Delano Roosevelt had trouble standing. But damn it, when he stood up in Congress and gives a, a declaration of war against Japan, like that's a very powerful moment. And it's, a, and it's an ability or and it's this ability to rally a country up behind the leader, like leaders matter. And I'm a firm believer in that because in this day of equality and everybody's special and everybody's important. No, some people are shit at what they do. And some people have no business being anywhere around any sort of major decisions. And in a perfect world, Logan and I, and I, I won't speak for you, but maybe you believe that like in a perfect world, nobody should be making any sort of life-changing decisions for anyone else because we, are, we all believe in the non-aggression principle and voluntary exchanges and interactions. However, that's not the case. And in the, in, in the case of nation states and geopolitics of the 21st century, built off the 20th century, who you lead, who you have leading you absolutely matters. Like JFK is able to rally the country in a way that other leaders would not have been. You don't have that. It's dead. And I don't even think Donald Trump had that type of gravitas. I don't think Obama had it, George Bush, like the American, like the, the leadership quality of American presidents has steadily declined. And I, I think it's done to cool equilibrium, right? When you have a bunch of idiot people that can vote, the only thing that you're ever going to get is average, right? When, when, when your average people can vote, your leaders are going to be average. And even especially, though, when you start comparing it to these, these other countries that aren't in the democratic process, Putin does not have to worry about this. Putin is the type of leader that you wish that you could have to a certain extent. And I'm not here to, like, don't... Please don't take that out of context and everybody's here to crucify me as a, as a Russian apologist or anything. But here's somebody who is smart. He has studied the, the art of war and geopolitics. He has been raised on it. You're talking about the same man that is pictured standing next to Reagan as, as a family in, the, Krim, in the, the square of the Kremlin, right? Oh, Reagan's in Russia. Let's just have a nice family, take a picture with them. Who's there? It's Vladimir Putin. It's a KGB agent. He is somebody who has been bred and is astute in the world of espionage and warfare and geopolitics. And you put him against people like Obama, he embarrassed the fuck out of them. You put him against people like Trump, he's outmatched. You put him against someone like a, a, a Joe Biden. Oh, my goodness. Like, I really feel like I could take like this. I, I would take a random high schooler in my town and put them up against, like, instead of Joe Biden. And I think our outcomes are going to be similarly disastrous. Well, maybe yeah, we yeah. just need that moment to, in the same way JFK stood up in front of Congress to give an impassioned speech. Maybe if Joe Biden went on a 10-minute salient speech, it would really galvanize this nation to see uh, his, his recovery in that moment. <laughs> I do oh, wonder, I wanted to ask you guys... <laughs> I, I keep getting this one online in the, the more conservative circles where it's like, man, ha happy y'all voted blue now. This wouldn't happen if Trump was in charge. Do you guys put any weight at all? Do you think that if Donald Trump was still uh, in his second term now that this same issue would be arising? 
Um, it's tough to answer that one. I, I, I tend to lean towards no, but I'm not certain. Because um, I, I know Trump had made a lot of threats towards both Moscow and China that, you know, he would be bombing most specifically Moscow and Beijing if they made moves like this. But mm-hmm. I don't know if those threats actually held weight. And I don't know if, you know, Putin also might have had a plan for Trump as well. You know, maybe this was his plan for, you know, for Democrats in office. And maybe there's a different plan if Trump was in office. Because, you know, he's been preparing for this for years. I mean, like they started restructuring their economy in like the 2010s just so that they could be, you know, for the most part, sanction proof. Like the sanctions have zero effect on Russia right now. Yeah. And, um, you know, it does make you wonder if he maybe would have had a plan for Trump as well. And mm. obviously none of us knows the answer to that. Um, but I, I think it's a little bit too, um, I think the right needs to humble themselves a bit more and also realize that, you know, you're not invincible and that there are ways for people to come at you as well. Yeah. I, and to build off that, you also had, I mean, it was under George W. Bush that uh, Putin took, um, what, what am I trying to think of? Chechnya. Right. Like there like there has been territorial expansions of Russia under these strong Republican presidents. And yeah, I think that we, we fall into the same trap, like like just like a lot of people say, like, oh, well, the economy was good under Donald Trump. This this wouldn't have happened if he was president. I think you fall under the same exact um, it falls in the exact same category. Right. To say, like, because we don't know. Right. Like mm-hmm. you can dive into these these. Um, parenthetical alternate realities parallel universes all day but we just we just don't know i would say though that and god i sound like a a fucking russian apologist (laughs) all of a sudden because i think that what and it only and it only comes from like looking at american leadership and the way that america approaches problems specifically over the last 30 years that i'm that i look back at like history like russia has done historically a really good job at understanding its shortcomings and completely just like galvanizing their economy and their people to overcome them, right? Like Stalin says in 1929, he says, hey, look, we've got to overcome 30 years of deficits from the West and we have 10 years to do it, right? How poetic was that, right? Because now in 10 years later, you have the invasion of uh, of Poland and he's like, hey, Hitler, you want to split it? And and then we all know what happens (laughs) later. But I mean, that, that is one of those moments though, right? Russia sees how bad they, how, 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 how they're lacking. You also have, um, oh goodness, now his name's escaped me. He was uh, kind of the, the interior minister under the czar. Oh, his name, it's going to come. Oh, I had it. And then I forgot it. But anyways, he was, he was one of those people that really helped look in Russia, especially in the early 1900s and say, Hey, look, we've got to change this, right? Like we're an aggressive rural community that has no business playing empire. We've got to industrialize our society. And he had a huge part in same thing. Like you were saying, when Putin steps back and says, shit, we've got to be sanction proof. The ability to do that in 10 years is actually pretty astronomical because what has America accomplished? If you want to go back to 2011, okay, so Russia has done X, Y, and Z, and please do not take me as a Russian apologist because I'm not here 
here condoning what Putin has done. I'm just only pointing out the difference of leadership and how it matters. Look at what Russia has been able to do in 10 years and look at where we are. Do you think that we are in a better place 10 years now down the road? Because I'll take 2011 over 2021 any day. Well, you might yeah. be underestimating the impact of uh, proper representation and the ability to pick your own pronouns. I think uh, it's maybe the gap you're missing there. <laughs> Indeed. Oh, yeah. Uh, nothing better than also like completely sanitizing all social media of any dissenting voices. You know, that was a, a big, you know, a big push that we made over the last 10 years. And I think we've done a great job there. <laughs> That's a good point. Really uh, helped uh, rate while we look over at this dictator across the seas. Uh, after we've just spent all this time ratioing anybody who has a, a dissonant opinion against our own state. Yeah. And interestingly enough, Putin's Twitter's still up. They've yeah. canceled, they've canceled a lot of people for a lot less, but invade a sovereign country. Oh no, you can solve your Twitter. It's fine. Yeah. yeah. My, my Twitter is down because I made a joke, but uh, you know, Putin, nah, he's up. He's up. What's man. the joke? Let's hear it. Uh, okay. So I, I, it was a retweet. That's the worst part about it. Um, so oh, someone, that's- Someone took Pedo Bear and put Pedo Bear's face over Biden, and then they put um, Pepe's face over Trump over one of the debate photos from 2020. And they're like, look, these are your two options. Which one are you choosing? And I thought it was funny, so I retweeted it. They banned every single person who retweeted that. And uh, I was included. Yeah, yeah. They told me that I had been running an account that was... um, what was it? Uh, I, you've been you've been sheltering I, extremists under your floorboards. <laughs> yeah, I, I violated their policy on misinformation. <laughs> That's what it was. <laughs> Those aren't the actual faces of the two candidates in the election. <laughs> Mama mia! Yeah, that, yeah, exactly. But you can invade a country and you're good. You're golden. So I mean, those are our priorities. That's um, it. That's it. All right. All right. So let's let's shift gears um, and flirt. We're going to we're going to lean on you for this part. Let's talk about Swift, what it is, what are the implications of it? Because um, I have an understanding, but at the same time, like you got to you got to you got to what they say, hire out your weaknesses, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Oh, good, good. This is something I was really hoping we would talk about. So Swift was invented right after the convertibility of gold ended in 1973. Um, it replaced the old system of interbank communication where they basically used a telephone and they discussed like how many bricks of gold to move from one account to the other or how much to ship uh, at the end of each month and how they would settle. Um, in this case, um, SWIFT is more of an interbank communication system where you can send uh, essentially coded messages. They're kind of like um, encrypted messages, but they're just older. It's like an older form of blockchain, you could almost say. Um, And now SWIFT is what every single bank uses to communicate with each other uh, around the world. Um, There was a time when I remembered what that acronym stood for. I don't anymore. Um, But it's kind of like a communication standard. Um, So if you want to transact to any other bank um, that's not your bank, especially if it's in another country, you have to use SWIFT. Um, sometimes the banks will automatically use the SWIFT system, even within the same country. They just won't ask you for that tender the code. But if you've ever sent like a wire um, internationally, you'll get asked for the SWIFT code. Um, and the SWIFT code is basically like a, an initial routing system, which routes it to a very specific bank uh, or a very specific country. Um, and then... <clears throat> it stands for Society a- for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunications. Ah, there you go. That was going to be my first guess. I should have just said it. (laughs) (laughs) 
And so Swift is uh, based out of Belgium. I can't remember who actually created Swift, um, but it's, it's some sort of like Frankenstein between the US and Europe. Um, and so this country, sorry, this bank is based in Belgium. And so they're subject to all of the laws that um, Belgium follows, which includes the EU, which is uh, under effect by UN treaties. So whenever the UN makes a statement saying, um, hey, uh, this bank or this person is not allowed to transact, what it really means is that SWIFT says, okay, we're gonna go find this bank code in our system and this bank, but this bank code is no longer allowed to send and receive messages. And so they're essentially cutting that bank off from making any sort of transaction to anyone else within SWIFT. And it's kind of like, um, you know, you might have a cell phone, but if you don't have access to a cell phone tower, the cell phone is basically a brick. You know, you can't call anyone, you can't send any text messages. Um, and SWIFT is like the system of cell phone towers, which routes one cell phone to another. It's a system which routes one bank to another. So whenever sanctions are issued, um, SWIFT as a country that's following the laws of Belgium and the EU um, is compliant with all, native, with all UN sanctions. And so they will enact any UN sanctions. And they'll also ask any member banks to follow all UN sanctions as well. Um, SWIFT says that they're not responsible for enacting these sanctions, their member banks are. Um, but if their member banks step outside of policy, then SWIFT, you know, punishes them. So in a sense, SWIFT is still enacting these sanctions. Um, and if you go to SWIFT's website, you'll actually see like a, a frequently asked question about sanctions. And they'll say that SWIFT does not ever sanction any countries. And then they'll give a big disclaimer about Iran in 2012. And they did, <laughs> in fact, um, sanction Iran. And this was part of the, you know, nuclear negotiation with Obama back in 2012, 2011. And the U.S. ended up twisting SWIFT's arm and forcing them to enact these sanctions on Iran. And uh, when that happened, Iran was unable to make any transactions to any bank outside of Iran whatsoever. Um, and this communication went both ways. So no one could transact to Iran, no one could transact from Iran. And because there was like, you know, the same way the Russian ruble fell, like in anticipation of potential sanctions, um, the Iranian, I forget the name of their currency, but it fell 80%. Um, Right could have said anything you wanted to right there, and neither one of us would have corrected. Yeah, right. I could have said the dinar or whatever. <laughs> I mean, that would have, that was kind of where my mind went. I was like, it's not the dinar. <laughs> I would have yeah. shaken my stupid head in agreement <laughs> so that I looked smart, and that's about all you would have got out of me. Yeah, well, I like to stay in my lane. If I don't know something, I did my best not to say it. Um, so, you know, their currency fell 80%. Um, the sanctions basically applied to anything except medicine, but of course, Medicine has to be sent on ships, then these ships have to dock in Iranian ports, which means they have to have insurance while they're in the port, which they couldn't buy. So the ships that would have been shipping medicine in and out um, ended up not uh, going to Iran anymore. So as of 2012, Iran went on some shortages. Some of those you mentioned for Yemen, you know, they don't have medicine for cholera, they didn't have medicine for diabetes. If you're a hemophiliac, they don't have the medicine to allow your blood to clot. So you're no longer allowed to have a surgery if you're a hemophiliac. Oh, you need is Rasputin at that point. Right? You have to <laughs> hope that you're Rasputin incarnate. Otherwise, you're kind of screwed and you need to fly out of a ramp. But you won't be able to pay for the surgery in, let's say, Italy if you fly there because they won't take your money. Um, you know, if you have HIV, well, shit, you got AIDS now because the medicine's gone. Like literally anything you might have wanted in Iran just kind of disappeared and cut off at the knees. And um, these sanctions are still in place, by the way. It's been 10 years. They haven't been lifted. Um, and, you know, the U.S. is whining now because Iran is like, you know, closer to China and Russia. And um, China created a system called SIPS. I don't remember what it stands for. It's CIPS. 
Um, it functions the exact same as Swift, except China controls it. Um, and you can use it to make transactions and settle transactions interbank. Um, I believe it settles on the renminbi and in gold, um, but I don't know that off the top of my head. So people would have to look up and see what the settlement currency is um, for the SIP system. But it's a replacement. And if you've been sanctioned and you no longer have access to SWIFT, well, um, we don't have any influence over China and whether they're going to cut you off from SIPs or not. So um, China has been like a lifeline for a lot of countries. And SIPs went live in 2016 or 2017. I don't remember the exact date. I made a post on Instagram when it happened, but it's been so long. Like I just, I, I'm not going to go back and look for it. Um, but you know, these countries that have been sanctioned now they have a lifeline. We're like, oh hey, we can actually transact. Hey, we can sell things to China and any bank that has um, access to the SIP system. And um, right now, most of those banks are in China and Russia and you know Iran and probably soon Afghanistan, if I had to guess, because um, you know we're sanctioning Afghanistan in the exact same way. And um, you know, it's only going to be a matter of time before these banks in Afghanistan realize that, like, okay, why don't we join the SIP system instead? Um, you know, Russia has several banks that are attached to the SIP system, and Russia created their own system. It's called SPFS. I also don't know what that acronym stands for. Um, it is uh, a Russian equivalent to SWIFT. Um, the only issue is it only operates during business hours in Russia. So, you know, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Russian time, Monday through Friday but it functions the same way as the Sullivan Clearinghouse. And, you know, the issue is now that all of the entities that are selling these, the things that are being produced in China, Russia, Iran, and probably soon Afghanistan, they've got banks that use SIPs and SPFS. So if you want to buy these things, now you have an incentive where you need to join their system. You need to adopt their communication system. And then, you know, you have complete free reign to use that communication system, regardless if there's been a sanction or not. And, you know, what I was getting to earlier, maybe like an hour or two ago, is that, you know, as this system is being fleshed out and as more banks join this system, there becomes kind of a network effect where you might want to join that network. Where previously it was just China, like who gives a shit? No one wants to join SIPs. You know, China was using SWIFT as well anyways. So you just use SWIFT if you want to, you know, communicate with Chinese banks. Um, but as, you know, especially if these entities get cut out. So if we cut China off from SWIFT and we cut Russia off from SWIFT, all of their trading partners have to switch over to SIPs if they still want to buy things. Whereas, you know, China, Russia, Iran, Afghanistan, yeah, they can operate at a lower level of uh, interstate commerce, but they'd still be operational. Whereas what happens when Germany loses 70% of their energy? Um, you know, I was looking at um, an economist that did an analysis of what oil prices would likely end up going to on the margin if we cut out all the production from uh, Russia in Europe. Uh, they were saying four to nine times higher. And, you know, currently we're at $90 a barrel here in the U.S. in um, Brent crude, which is kind of like the, you know, uh, North Sea equivalent to West Texas Intermediate, which is the pricing of oil in the Gulf of Mexico. Over there, it's over $100 a barrel right now. Um, could they do a four to nine times higher on oil and gas? I, I don't think so. But anyways, that's kind of like a breakdown of what SWIFT is. It's interbank communication, and it's uh, the communication standard that every bank has to adopt if they want to communicate. And the more competitors it has, the less influence the West has over these, um, the ability to even enact sanctions. So any questions? <laughs> I was just going to say, do you think then with that being said, that the precarious situation we put ourselves in and being energy dependent uh, and not just we as in America, but 
uh, because obviously we have reserves and the ability to, to begin fracking again uh, at a larger scale. But in the West in general, um, should we hold uh, Greta Thunberg on war trials for putting us <laughs> in this terrible situation? Oh, well, is, is she still a minor? I think her parents would actually have to stand trial for her. Uh, I, think, I think she's fair game now. <laughs> oh, is, oh, is she a uh, Billie Eilish age or whatnot? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little concerned that you have a list of these ladies waiting for you to turn 18. I mean, I don't have the list. The internet has the list. They just remind me every day. <laughs> every time it's I search up new pictures of... Oh, not even too early. Google safe search. Where you at? <laughs> oh, oh, but that's, that's interesting. And, and I mean, what is the, I guess, the likelihood? How do you see that playing out? I mean, like you said, that when you create two different distinct markets to compete against each other and only one of them is actually producing goods to sell to the other and especially when our economy specifically is based on the value of our petrol dollar uh i mean is this this the grand plan all along is this putin's 5d chess where he's now got us in a really bad spot you know i doubt that when putin and xi jinping created these systems they were thinking about like oh this will cripple the west because they're going to play right into our hands uh, I, I genuinely think they were only thinking of like how can i strengthen my control of my sphere of influence how can i weaken my opponent and their ability to impact me and i, I think that's as far as it went over there because you know thinking about like how far in advance you have to think to create this kind of grand plan you know, you'd have to create a system for your benefit and you would have to hope that your opposing side didn't understand how it worked or functioned whatsoever, despite you constantly telling everyone like, hey, look, we have the system. Hey, look, we have the system. Hey, like you can find news from like literally like once a week when SIPs went live where China was like, look at our new system, like constantly holding it up. Like for them to believe that like, and the West will never understand it. And then we're gonna invade some random country so that they, so that they sanction us. Uh, instead of bombing us or attacking us or whatever, that way it will cripple them. You know, it's like, that's like a level of like nine nine D brain mechanics that like, I couldn't even, I couldn't function. You some know? big brain juice. Matt, you've had some nice there. things to say about Putin. Do you disagree with that? <laughs> <laughs> As our local Russian correspondent, uh, right. I would say the only, only thing I might even uh, push back a little bit on that with is, Putin is very familiar with this game plan that we've set up and played with the Soviet Union. Uh, we both used Al-Qaeda and bin Laden in exactly this way, where you don't defeat a big empire through traditional military means. You do it by drawing them out thin, uh, by getting them spread out, spending all their money and, and ruining themselves economically, which is sadly kind of the trap that we have now fallen into. It was, uh, from what I understand, our own CIA's design uh, to take out the Soviet Union, and now we're turning around and falling for the same traps. Um, I think it is possible that Putin kind of learned that lesson, and maybe he didn't uh, foresee this far into the future, uh, but I do think that he has been steadily planning and kind of steadily setting up this situation, knowing that we are going to spread ourselves thin all over the freaking Middle East and put ourselves in a bad position. Uh, and I'm sure, especially when we entered that petrodollar, I mean, He's no dummy either. There's smart guys running that system over there. They probably saw the weakness in that system and the potential to undermine it at some point in the future. And just kind of, though they may not have had the the master plan, knowing that they are going to do it on uh, on 
to 22, uh, they, they did probably at least see this chink in the armor and understand that that might be something they could exploit in the future if they needed to. Uh, it's possible. And, you know, if I had to put myself in Putin's shoes for a little bit and imagine what it would look it's like. Size 16, by the way, was... he has huge feet. A lot of people don't know that. <laughs> really? No, I made that up. Oh, okay. I would have believed you, man. <laughs> this is like the, the Iranian dinar thing. I was like, oh, yeah, of course. That's really no, the name certainly. of the currency. Um, <laughs> but, you know, if I was to imagine myself there, I think the one thing you'd be looking at would be what the global supply of resources looks like and what control you have. Because like the petrodollar is cool and all, but like, let's say like like we are now, where Putin controls the oil supply to um, most of Europe, most of the US's allies in Europe. Well, then obviously that's the situation where Putin says, okay, cool, I'm in a position of strength to fight the petrodollar. Let's say for instance, if we were drilling and we're drilling in Alaska and we're fracking and we're increasing our output and maybe the price of oil is not like $40 a barrel or something because we're, exporting a lot we're able to send oil to europe where you know our lng terminals are built out and we're able to ship natural gas out to europe then russia would be in a very different position um both in terms of how much um you know taxes they're pulling in from the oil sector of their economy and also in how much control and influence they exert over europe so you could say that you know when we talk about greta thunberg and this um environmental fixation of the left um, a lot of that plays into the favor of, you know, Russia, because, you know, when we don't drill, it's not like people stop using oil. It's we just go to places where it's made in dirtier ways and we buy it from them instead. And um, that's, you know, that plays perfectly into the, the geopolitical hands there. And it's interesting because at some point, I think the left has to realize that like our only method of counter sanctioning is by, you know, drilling our own oil and selling it to Europe and undermining Putin's ability to sell to Europe. Um, you know, and even that's an uphill battle. I mean, you got to think about shipping oil overseas. That doesn't help out the oil price. And how long before we start seeing the the attrition of support on our side where they're like, you know, we're just going to buy it from Russia. It's right there. Well, I mean, you know, you talk about the helping of oil price right now, like we're not helping it. I mean, one issue, too, is when oil prices rises, normally what you see is like they pick up drilling, they pick up production. Um, but currently in the market as it stands, oil is at $100 a barrel and or it almost it's back at 90 right now. I think that's where it closed for the week. Yeah, um, I think that's most, what I reading as well. Most U.S. producers aren't expanding any of their oil production right now. Um, they're still kind of sitting back and they're thinking like this isn't going to last. The U.S. government's going to intervene. They're trying to move towards green thing. We might see more taxes, blah, 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 blah. For whatever reason, they just have not started producing more here. Um, you know, most of the fracking hasn't, hasn't increased significantly. Uh, most of the offshore stuff in the Gulf hasn't really increased significantly either. Um, so we're going to be seeing oil prices rise significantly, unless there's some expectation of a consistent market for U.S. oil. I don't really expect them to increase production because like right now it's like they made an investment a while back and the more oil rises, the more they're making up their initial investment. Um, they could make a new investment right now to increase production, but that investment is now uncertain. So like right now they're printing money, they're gonna have a decent quarter, everything's fine. If they decide to expand their production, now they're in a risk position again and they have to hope that oil price stays up. And if there's no like real specific market for it, why would they? It'd be uh, suicide, especially if you're a publicly traded company um, you'd probably end up facing some sort of fiduciary responsibility for losing money. Um, there's no reason CEO, CEO should be just taking a vacation right now. 
hanging out on the beach in Mexico and uh, coming back later on if oil prices stay up. That's what I'd be doing anyways. That's a really yeah. good point. It makes sense. There's actually a, there's a really good um, Malcolm Gladwell podcast where he, inter- where he uh, interviews a bunch of quants. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with that term. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he, so he interviews a bunch of quants and one of the guys, he was talking about the 2008 financial crisis. And he said, if I was in charge of the federal reserve, as soon as that whole thing started, I would have flown to the beach. I would have turned off my phone. I would have done nothing for like four months. <laughs> and then it's like, Oh, we need you to do something. Oh, I'm not going to do anything. I'm sorry. I can't hear you over my margarita, you know, <laughs> just click. And it um, would have been better. It would have been better. It would it would have been better. Like just do nothing. And I think that that like to tie it back into this. I think a lot of times, when when you run into these, um, when you run up against the wall of these critical moments of human history, we want someone to do something, right? Please, someone, just do something. Help us. When oftentimes it's like ah. Just do nothing. And I'm a firm believer that in my personal life, right? It's like, oh, I'll do nothing about this. And, and, and more times than not, it actually ends up working out a lot better than if I would have tried to do something. And if I have to suffer the consequences of it, so be it. But I will say that have you still nothing, not, you still haven't gone to the doctor about those hemorrhoids? Sure haven't. <laughs> sure haven't. <laughs> still paying the Gordo's tax. <laughs> <laughs> uh gordo's is a wonderful austin restaurant that makes a uh, traditional american dishes but instead of bread they use donuts oh jesus christ oh, man. My goodness. <laughs> you, it's it's wonderful you do have to clear your schedule for at least 12 hours in the next day because you're going to spend a lot of that time in the bathroom yeah i don't know if that sounds worth it man <laughs> it was <laughs> the reason that you don't know if it sounds worth it is because you haven't sunk your teeth into a jalapeno donut cheeseburger yet what the okay i mean you're right <laughs> um, <laughs> i've never thought like any of those things to go together so you know maybe i gotta find out for myself before i really start uh, giving you a hard time that's why you look like that and i'm 270 pounds <laughs> <laughs> yeah fair fair i mean i could probably stand to gain a few here oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, you derailed us really bad with gordos i'm sorry i'm fat and now my brain's thinking only about food so one of you guys are gonna have to pick up the subject matter now uh, I feel you. I mean, we, we were talking about Swift SIPs and uh, SPFS. And, you know, one thing that people don't talk about as well is, um, you know, when we see what happened to a lot of Canadians who donated to the trucker rally, uh, not knowing that it was going to be called like an illegal thing later on and having their entire bank accounts frozen and their lives frozen. Um, there's the other question as well, because like a lot of us as individuals have the same exposure to um, the whims of the liberal economic order that uh, Russia and China have. And like, I think we have it on ourselves to also become a bit more anti-fragile in this manner. Um, I've been complaining about this a lot for like the last um, seven weeks of my life. My bank accounts have been completely frozen, no access to any of them. Um, And like literally crypto has saved my life. If it wasn't for that, I like the lights would be off here. Um, My internet wouldn't be working. I'd probably be on the street, no rent or anything, blah, 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 blah. And I think it's one thing that people Sorry, are. Dick's gonna... not all that bad. <laughs> you're right. You're right. I should have gone back out on the streets, man. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody who sucks it every day, it's you get over it. <laughs> it's gotten harder with yeah. the mask, though. <laughs> <laughs> They've got no, the 
eat out of that. Yeah, you just in the middle. Yeah, you just get the. You just get the. I wondered what that was for. It's coming together now. It's for playing yeah. instruments and sucking dick. So, <laughs> sorry, I didn't mean to. I just saw. I saw a def, a sup, an opportunity to self-deprecate. So, well, I mean, you're a subject matter expert. You're just stepping in where you see your lane. You know? <laughs> you're here. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, ultimately, this kind of liberal economic order that wants to exert this level of control, both over citizenry and over like foreign countries it's going to find that people are going to end up having to create their own lanes of like where they can be safe. And like, you know, I'm not trying to like tell people like, oh, buy crypto, but like think about having a standard that doesn't like completely rely on your bank. Um, I was completely reliant on one bank for like most of my life. And like, I just let my crypto run and like, you know, it was cool. It's a nice investment. And now I find myself in a situation where all of a sudden like, I don't have any other way to spend money except through crypto because of what the bank's doing to me. And, um, you know, this is going to happen more and more and more. Like we've got, I, I think it's going to be a whole nother decade of this. You know, Biden's eventually going to follow um, Trudeau's playbook. There's no reason for him not to. Um, I'm sure we're going to see a lot more um, kind of just hardline things being done to U.S. citizens. And, you know, just as Russia's ability to, Transact um, is now been completely separated from SWIFT and allows them to be mostly sanction independent. And also their ability to like, hey, they make more food than they need. They make more energy than they need. You know, this isn't just about the bank. Like, think about it. If you own your own home, uh, grow some chickens, um, put some food in like your window, like um, some plants or some shit, um, you know, become less uh, dependent on the need to spend money as well um, and more dependent on yourself and things that are outside of the system because we don't know what's coming. We don't know what thing... Like my joke about Billie Eilish might make me a, a target for something in the future. And maybe I, I'm no longer allowed to like even walk inside of like any sort of HelloFresh Amazon grocery store. And, um, you know, I don't know that's happening right now, but maybe the die has already been cast. And you listening, you might have done something in 2018 that's on Twitter's servers. And, you know, maybe the election happens in 2022 and your local representative gets in like, hey, we're going after all the people who were fans of uh, some sort of obscure anime that you used as your profile photo. You don't know what's going to happen to you or why. And so it's important to start thinking about like decreasing your exposure to the system. Um, Cause you know, this conflict in Russia and eventually this conflict with China, um, they're likely not gonna just stay over there. And I don't mean like bombs are coming over here but I, I mean hardships coming over here. And you need to be less dependent on Uber Eats um, going to the grocery store and all of these other things that we just kind of take for granted as a part of the world because we never lived in a world without them. Um, start imagining a world where Peter Parker has died and there is no Spider-Man. You're going to have to make your own web fluid now. And it, it comes from some gross places. You know? <laughs> You're going to have to save yourself. <laughs> you beat me to it. I was trying to think of that same joke there. I was like, oh, wait. He said web can, fluid. Think of it. Get there. Right. I can only be serious for so long. Now. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I, that's something that's near and dear to our heart as well. We did a, an episode on uh, kind of what it would look like in the ANCAP society and, and how much does that affect our uh, consumer attitude? Because we live in a nation now where we, uh, most of us live in gigantic cities that are not self-sustainable. We don't make our own food, produce our own food. Uh, we just consume it. And we don't know how to do those things anymore as a nation. And I, I think that in our more free market uh, volunteer society that, that Matthew and I ponder each week on this podcast, 
uh, even in that, you, we don't have room to ha have zero producers. It's not a good place to be unless you are that bully that the United States has been for a couple uh, decades now. And it, it worked out for us because we were able to intimidate the rest of the world into go doing our way. But now that we don't know how to produce anything, we don't have the skilled laborers to even do that within a generation. It's going to take time for us to get good at it and efficient at it again, uh, not to mention the infrastructure that we're probably missing in all of these areas. Uh, and we're going to get in a situation potentially where our dollar falls apart and <laughs> we have to figure that shit out in a hurry. Um, so I'm all with that message, man. You have to be able to take care of yourself in the absence of daddy government falling uh, because it, it isn't the most stable thing. I know we like to think of it that way. That's the way the state education teaches it. Good old America is the good guys and they're going to be here forever. But look at the history of mankind. and These, these empires don't tend to last a very, an extremely long time. Most definitely. Like we're in for a really rough decade. I don't think people really have pictured exactly what this means, what this implies for them. Um, you know, people say the word normalcy bias a lot, very often. And also in terms of COVID, a lot of people are saying like, oh, we just need to get back to normal. Um, you know, there's this kind of idea that people have that the world doesn't change. It's the static place. And the things that were true for me in 2012, 2014, 2018 will be true for me in 2026. And the reality is like the ground is just always shifting underfoot at any given time. And one thing to think about is as we end up shifting into two separate financial spheres, one which is the East and one which is West, we're gonna be losing out on a lot of things that um, we're very short on. And so learning the skills and being able to produce some of these things that we're very short on, like the value that's gonna reprice significantly. Um, like anyone who has any sort of like specific trade, like people who are like mechanics, for instance, they've probably noticed that over the last year, um, work has just been nonstop and they are always behind and they're always backed up. And, you know, for people who are trying to get things done, like um, let's pretend there ends up being a semiconductor shortage. So let's say China invades Taiwan and those those factories are just basically dead. Right now we've got semiconductors, basically everything, your fridge, uh, your microwave, your stove. Like why the fuck is there a clock on the microwave and the stove? They're right next to each other. But we have semiconductors in them just so that the fucking clocks can run when really they're a mechanical thing. You turn the switch, the thing turns on. You turn the switch, the thing turns off. But you know, instead we put them everywhere. Your, your fridge is connected to Wi-Fi, and it's always telling you what's in it for whatever dumb fucking reason. Um, like you know, you got a washing machine you can control with your phone, but like you can't put clothes in it with your phones. You got to walk over there anyways. Why? Um, but we're going to end up in this future where all these factories are tooled for smart appliances and they've run out of chips. And these people who produce them are be sitting around not wanting to retool because retooling a factory is expensive. They're going to be sitting around hoping that this resides or hoping that there's a quick re resolution in China. And you might end up in a situation where your fridge breaks and there are no replacements at Best Buy. There are no replacements at Lowe's. Uh, how many people do you know who are appliance mechanics who actually replace, uh, can fix mechanics and replace the small parts on them? I know one, and he doesn't live here in the city. Um, like, I don't know anyone in the city who can do it. Like, if you have that sort of skill, for instance, the labor for what you do is going to reprice massively. Um, the yeah. labor for people who can keep cars on the road is going to reprice massively. Um, the people who actually build houses, repricing. Uh, people who can cut lumber and turn it into actual usable wood planks, repricing. Like all of this is going to reprice. Like if you are one of those journalists who sits there in like New York City and you have an AI that creates an article for you and all you do is you rewrite it slightly so it makes sense, you're, what are you going to do? 
like your money is going to be worthless due to this kind of inflation. Whereas the only sort of job that's going to keep up with this is the labor that's repricing. And, you know, we're going to be sitting here like, man, houses are going up. It's like, no, money is going down and that labor is repricing. That's the one sector where labor is actually keeping up with uh, the price of money because it's something we don't, we don't have anymore. And um, people really need to start thinking about this and deciding for themselves, like, okay, what sort of like money do I have that might actually be worthwhile? Uh, is it crypto, gold, silver? And then also what sort of skills do I have that I can barter with? What, what sort of things can I make? Um, can I actually do things? Do I know like how to plant vegetables and make them grow decently? These are things you can learn right now. Um, and most people with the normalcy bias of thinking the supermarket's always gonna be there. Um, Home Depot is always gonna be there. There's going to be a, a cheap stove at Best Buy for like $500 in case yours ever breaks. A lot of things are going to go away. And a lot of people haven't really thought through what the ramifications of that, of that are going to be and what this decade is going to end up looking like. People want to blame Biden, Trump, Obama. Like it, it's deeper than that. You know, this is a five decade problem that's rearing its head. And the sooner you realize that, the sooner you can profit from it if you position yourself right and start thinking about how to be the kind of person that's useful in that future. And, you know, the, the longer you take to actually pivot towards that, the, the more painful it's going to be when it happens and you have to do it. So yeah. take the time now, learn the skills. Buy that Bitcoin today and fill up a garage with refrigerators right now. <laughs> <laughs> and in those refrigerators, put ammo. <laughs> Oh, now we're talking. Now we're talking. <laughs> keep we're keep your ammo nice and cool. I actually don't think you're supposed to refrigerate ammo. <laughs> Maybe it will but, last uh, You don't have to have it plugged in. <laughs> you don't have to have it plugged yeah, in. I, you just have a garage full of, <laughs> of uh, refrigerators. That's what I'm saying. It's a tradable commodity in the future. I was going to ask you how much uh, Coinbase you've bought, over, how much uh, crypto you've invested in over the last couple of days. But I guess if your bank accounts are frozen up, that's... Uh, probably not a lot of new crypto in your life. Um, well, there's, there's always new crypto. That's the thing. Um, crypto is a financial asset in itself and you can deploy it in any ways to make yield. Um, whether it's in, you know, kind of zero sum yield games where you're just enter entering something before it gets scammed and selling it and then, you know, not doing anything. Or if it's actually like productive where you, you know, you've bought equity in an exchange and you get a share of all the exchange traded on that. Ex sorry, all of the, total volume of trades on that exchange you know you can you can own crypto in that way like every day i have more crypto than i did the, the day before that's just kind of the way it goes but am i buying crypto with us dollars unfortunately no i can't and as soon as my bank account gets unfrozen i have been more and more tempted to just turn it all into crypto right the fuck away and just not even bother with the system i mean like i have a crypto card it works i'm able to make expenditures on it why why would i expose myself to the the bank risk after what happened you know like yeah. let's just let's assume i even get my money back what if i don't um which would be crazy and i don't want to get into the details of what's going on but like it would be literal theft if they did not give me the money back because of what's in the court order but i'm not going to go into that right now um but yeah it'd be crazy to be in the situation be burned like this and like let's pretend like half my body burns but eventually someone puts the fire out and i'm like well man that stove set me on fire but now that i'm not on fire anymore i'll go back to sitting on it like nah it's time to get off the stove man. I, I don't want to be part of the system I, I really don't and i feel like in 10 years that's not going to be something that i look back on like man i regret that i wish i had kept my us dollars like i, I don't see anything that's turning the system back in that direction 
And I mean, even in the short term, we these sanctions are going to have a, a hit on our uh, dollar as well. I mean, being in crypto right now is not that bad when you know there is definitely inflation on the way. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. But, you know, if we talk short term, short term, and I, I get into this a lot deeper on Substack, but there's still about two or three months where most crypto asset prices are going to be going down. Um, and that's just a, a reflection of the U.S. bond market. Um and the narrative of people who trade bonds and what's going on. Um, as that market slowly implodes, crypto will find its bottom and then we end up going on another run. Um, I'm just waiting and watching for signs of implosion. And last, uh, two weeks ago, there was a, bond, a primary bond auction and it has gone horribly for everyone who participated in it. And um, each one of these primary auctions is gonna go worse and worse and worse until someone realizes there's a problem. And uh, a war is a great excuse for people to start printing money and not have to say like, okay, our bond markets are actually toxic. Instead, they just print money and buy their own bonds and, you know, cover it all up. And people are like, well, the war happened. We had to. And, um, you know, the average person isn't literate in the, the sense where they understand like why that's bullshit. Um, and no shade on the average person. Like everyone has to specialize and find their lane and the thing that they're good at and the thing they're not. And, you know, that no one has time to really be looking into treasury bond auctions and like reading obscure news and whatnot, which is why I write the Substack. You know, I'm taking that time for you. And hopefully I'm not a fucking idiot and we'll find out eventually. <laughs> you, you definitely fooled us if you are. <laughs> that are birds of a feather. <laughs> hey, look, to be fair, most of the experts we hold up in this world today are fucking idiots. So like That's it wouldn't. Point. It wouldn't be that out of character if I was also a fucking idiot as well. <laughs> so what's a, what is like the coin to get? Is it just Bitcoin and Ethereum, the big guys, or you got you some uh, FJB coin going on? Uh, I, I don't have any of that. And like, if people want like legitimate general advice for, you know, if you don't have too much exposure to the sector yet, just buy Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, you, what you want to do is you get your money parked into those and they move up and down with the sector for the most part. So you buy in and you're fixed into the sector at that price. And let's pretend prices for the market go up 20 or 30%. Well, like, look, your investment tracked the market. So whenever you find something else you want to invest in, you can just pull from Bitcoin, pull from Ethereum. Um, but most people, they want to jump straight into something. So they'll buy like XRP or they'll buy some like, uh, a weird off-brand token that's worth a couple cents, like Doge. Doge isn't off-brand, it's pretty mainstream, but like people buy that because they hope like, oh, Doge will go to 10,000 like Bitcoin did. And like, that's not how it works exactly. Um, but- Yeah, I call those my lotto tickets. When I find one that's got like eight zeros after the, the decimal <laughs> point, I'm like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put 20 bucks down and get a million of those. And if mm -hmm. that one ever takes off, that's, I feel like that's probably better than buying a scratch off. Probably got a better chance of hitting, so why not? I, I spend my, my, my majority on the big guys, and then I scoop up some little shit coins here and there to see what happens. Yeah, that's what most people do. And, you know, as you do research and learn more, you can always pivot like a shave off a small portion of your Bitcoin, shave off a small portion of your F, take a flyer on something. Um, you just don't want to be like sitting there on the sideline trying to find your first investment. Like just uh, just go into BTC and add. And like I said, the market's going to be flat or down for the next two or three months until the bond market implodes. So like, don't drop your whole fucking nut load on this. You know, take a small amount, make regular buys like every two weeks or every month. And then, you know, whenever the market actually does bottom, if you follow my Substack, I'll tell you, um, I'm trying to be as accurate to within seven days because the bond market's pretty predictable, but we'll see. 
Um, that's a lofty goal on my side. Um, but, uh, you know, when that happens, then you can come in with your whole load and buy in and just ride the wave. But you God, know, you just... when we get, when Matthew and I get housed in the coin market, we're never having you on this podcast again. Or all the... <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Fuck that guy. I spent so much goddamn money on Bitcoin. Yeah, I'll be sitting there like, it's 10 bucks a month, all right? Just subscribe. <laughs> just subscribe. <laughs> You're like, that's my last $10. <laughs> I could have bought more Shiba coin with that. <laughs> right? How many, how many Shiba is that? I don't know. Like a million? A lot. It's quite a bit. It's, it's a, a lot. It's yeah, a I, lot. I think I threw down like, like 50 bucks on Shiba and I have like 18 million shares of Shiba. And if Shiba ever goes up, I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm no Even longer a podcaster. Even if it ever makes it to a penny. Yeah, I'll be doing sweet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that's everyone's goal, man. And I hope it works out for you. Truly, I do. <laughs> I don't have any any lofty. No, I, I'm kind of with you. Like, I mean, the nightmares of of what we're seeing now with uh, with governments passing. I mean, one of Biden's first uh, policies to pass was that all this domestic uh, terrorism type of stuff where. They and even got some of those warmongers on TV to to name drop libertarians in there with all those white supremacist groups at the end of it real subtly to try to that way. If you don't know what a libertarian is, you're just like, oh, they're white supremacists. I don't don't have to listen to those voices anymore. Those anti-state kooks. Um, But, yeah, it's like, what what am I doing keeping this money in a savings account? It's losing every day. Inflation's making it lose value. Yeah, it's, it's doing nothing for me. And why not? Take your your extra say. Obviously, you know, keep don't put yourself in a stupid situation. Don't put your rent money into investments. Make sure you have your life covered. But when you have a little bit of extra money, instead of throwing in a savings account to just get inflated into less money, you might as well have it in something that has the ability to actually gain value. Yeah, most definitely. And when I talk about taking all of my money and turning it into crypto. It's definitely horrible advice for most people. Um, uh, you know, I, I have enough in there that I could like pay my rent for a long time. So it's not a big deal to me. Um, and also I've come to the point where I'm almost price insensitive. Like I just don't want to be exposed to this nonsense in the bank. Like I don't care if like I buy in and let's say Bitcoin goes down 50%. It's still better than the 0% I have right now, right? Like can't use any of it. And like that might be permanent for me one day. And so escaping that, like I just don't have any sort of like my risk tolerance is gone. Like I, I just infinite, I'll take whatever just to escape this. And so I'm speaking from that perspective. Uh, a lot of people might be thinking about it differently because they're looking at it in the sense of like, how can I make more money? How can I protect myself? And they're talking from a position of risk tolerance. And in that sense, you know, maybe 10% of your assets should be crypto, not like everything in the bank goes into my crypto. <laughs> you know, like we have very different risk tolerances. And I think it's very important for people to like understand what their personal risk tolerance is before they start saying like, well, this guy's smart. Well, I just copy everything he's doing. Like, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> where's, uh, where's flirt? Where can yeah. I? <laughs> I'll be on a beach. My phone will be off. <laughs> <laughs> Cashing that subscription money. Thank you, right. Peterson. Dogs a month, everybody. <laughs> Look, guys, my advice is to do nothing. <laughs> my advice is to start a substrack and get a hundred dipshits to subscribe to us. Send you money. It's really easy. <laughs> right? Yeah, take it from me. That's that's what I want y'all to do. Just do nothing. <laughs> is that why uh, you choose not to go by your real name and just flirt cheap, just in case it goes south and a bunch of 
guys who got housed with the crypto market show up at your front door? Oh, exactly. I just want to disappear into the sunset after I take everyone's <laughs> everyone's money. That's that's my end goal here. Like I really don't want to provide any value whatsoever. <laughs> Smoking like a true capitalist. <laughs> I'll say that seems to be a long-standing American tradition. So right on. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so, uh, Social Security, <laughs> Bernie Madoff, yeah, clerk chief. They're all synonymous. <laughs> you know, another Ponzi man. Uh, in all honesty, I just didn't want things coming back to my employer. Um, obviously, I've quit now, so I don't need that. Like, that's not a reason anymore. Because, um, like, I like my employer was, like, incredibly left-wing. Everyone there was incredibly left-wing. Uh, the things that I said on the internet, like, regardless, just things about, like, oh, inflation's bad. We need to stop bombing people. Um, Obama droned a, an American citizen who was a kid over that. You know, stuff like that would get me in trouble. If it How dare there. you talk bad about chocolate Jesus? Yeah. And, you know, much less if I start saying like certain things about socialism is bad. Look what's happening in Venezuela, whatnot, whatnot, whatnot. Um, like uh, my employer had a strict no politics policy unless they were left wing politics, in which case they didn't enforce <laughs> it at all, um, which was like the most frustrating thing in the world because they'd be reminding people of the employee handbook and like, well, you know, we just had this election and you know, remember the employee handbooks, no, no politics. And then like the HR woman will like send a message out to everyone about how like sad this is and how we all know things are horrible. And I'm like, well, you what? What? <laughs> Well, what's sad about this? Are you making a political statement to me? Like, and oh, when the fucking riots were happening in 2020, I remember they approached me and asked me if I wanted a day off because I was black. And I'm like, what in the fuck? First like, of all, absolutely, I will go home. <laughs> like, and oh, here's the worst part too. Like, I was, um, I was in Arizona because I like we're working from home. So I was like, well, I'm just going to fly over to Arizona and just work from there. And so I was like in the airport, like I, I really wasn't checked in for work that day at all. And I was on the phone and like my boss wanted to have a conversation with me. And he's like, look, you know, I know these riots are going on and I understand this must be really hard for you in particular. So if you want to take a day off and I was like, um, no, I don't. But also, I'm just not going to be on Teams for the next three, three hours. My flight's about to take off. So like, I just, like, I, I just, I was really checked out 2020 for the most part. Like, I just, I just didn't have it in me. But, you know, now I don't work there anymore. Yeah, I could be using my real name now. And I'm also running into a situation, too. I was on a, um, a mainstream crypto podcast, and they used my real name. So I haven't, like, shared it on Instagram because I'm thinking to myself, like, like they were too serious they they didn't want to use my like fake name because like there's this weird thing that's happening in crypto where like web 3.0 is really anonymous and there's a lot of people who operate with pseudonyms for the same reason that i was because you don't want things getting back to your employer um especially you don't want them knowing that hey i've started this thing that's worth like a couple hundred thousand dollars now i might be leaving soon like that gets back to your employer it doesn't look good and so like half of crypto are people who are completely anonymous and they don't use their real names. They've got an avatar of some shit and, you know, they're just kind of in and out. They disappear with the wind. And then there's the other half where it's people who are trying to like join and like wallet name and like make it like a job job where they're like, um, you know, I've started this consulting fund in crypto and this is my real name and my address and all this stuff. And like, there is this interesting like place where they're trying to inter inter intersect, but they're not. And so like me being invited onto that podcast was them trying to intersect it um, and because of people I knew in real life, not people I know on like Web3. 
And it was like a weird experience for me because like I was suddenly in this place where like I couldn't 100% be myself because I was using my real name and what they wanted from me and how they wanted me to interact. And so one thing I like about Flirt Cheap is just that it's a fake name and I get to 100% be myself in like what I'm thinking and saying. There's no filter. There's no attachment to identity. There's no none of this stuff. Like I don't even like I don't have to think about like how I came across four years ago and I don't think about how I'm going to have to come across four years from now like everything is like fully genuinely me and when I do get eventually banned from like social media that'll just be that and you know maybe I'll come back with a completely different name and I won't tell anyone or maybe I won't I don't don't know Uh, it's tough tough to say Uh, but in truth I really am not trying to scam people like I just want the best for people there's a free section of Substack you don't have to pay um, there's enough in the free section for you to get started and, you know, make your way on your own. Uh, truly like sign up for free, read the free stuff, take it to heart, do with it what you will. Um, if you like the content and you want some more in-depth guides, yeah, pay for it. Cool. Um, but like, look, I don't want your money. I don't need your money, but there's a paywall up because I don't like freeloaders. Um, <laughs> really, that's really what's going on. Um, and I forgot, I got off topic here. I like the name for Chief. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you. It's good. No, I, I totally get that. And the more people we run into in this world that are smart enough to hide their identities for exactly those reasons, the more I'm like, I think my narcissism might have got the best of me there where I'm just like, yeah, I'm going to say whatever the fuck I want. I don't give a shit what anybody thinks. <laughs> and like, here we are, you're into it. And it's like, huh, wonder what happens in the near future when I've just slapped my name on this and could be doxxed by anybody who wants to take half an hour to go look me up probably. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, one thing, my very first employer that I worked for after college, um, I was using my real name on social media at that point. Um, so like Flirt Cheap was there, but you could see my full name there. And like people found me on LinkedIn. And I remember one thing, like that employer was like, all of the employees were male. Um, they were like left wing as well, but it was the kind of place where like you could insult someone to their face and like just chill out and have a good time. Like, uh, it was a great employer. I loved the environment. It was perfect. It was also really misogynistic, racist. Uh, people were just like mean for like no All reason. the best things. Yeah, the it was great. It was great. <laughs> but like, I could have my name there. And like, if they ever called my employer, were like, hey, do you know what you guys saying online? And they're like, it's probably not worse than what he says during lunch. So I think we'll be fine. And truth was, it wasn't. Um, but, you know, moving to like a more serious company, um, you know, I had to make sure like my entire presence was wiped off of the internet just because of like you know how embarrassingly sad this company was as far as like having a spy in the background like they had none um yeah which tends to happen i mean these corporate entities they and we hammer that point home all the time on this podcast they don't care about your cause they're not there to actually champion these social justice issues they're there for price motives and the easiest way to align with those price motives is to make sure there is zero chance of anybody being offensive. And if that means everybody's got to be the PC police, then that's what they're going to do to make sure they stay within those lines and don't have to worry about any of these other dissonant views or problems. Yep, exactly. That was their main priority is just um, how do we offend the least people possible, um, even if we make two completely conflicting statements. And that's just the way it went. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's Absolutely. like that Occupy Democrats where they're like, why, why would um, 
why why do Americans need AR-15s? Weapons of war have no place on our streets. And they liked the Ukrainian government's handing out tens of thousands automatic weapons. Retweet if you stand with Ukraine. It's like you guys really don't see the dissonance yeah, in exactly. that episode. Like it's really lost on you. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no ethics, no morals whatsoever, just pure naked inoffensiveness. Um, you know, living in like the endless present of uh, Orwell's 1984, um, where the only thing that matters is what is the most useful to me in the moment. Um, there's no like entity behind there. There's no persistent consciousness. Um, you know, any sort of corporate entity that's publicly traded, I feel, um, is less real than like, um, I don't know, an aborted baby, you know, as far as like what it's got behind it. There's just there's nothing there. Um, literally, uh, you, you give like if you took if you took my last employer and you went back four years and looked at their statements compared to their statements now, probably you could see a complete reversal with no acknowledgement that it ever reversed. You know, it's just like we've always had this opinion. What do you mean? Yep. Hell yep. yeah, we're going to take your AR-15s and your AK-47s. And now the newest Beto is like, I completely believe in the Second Amendment. I think it's a right that has to be protected. It's like, uh-huh. I'm sure you do, yeah. bud. <laughs> Just an endless present. And that's the most demoralizing part of politics whatsoever, is that they won't take a stand and have a backbone and take the consequences of their own statements. Right. Know? Even if you're wrong, I'd much rather have somebody that, I mean, I would, in, in, especially now that we've shifted to this world of like political correctness and there's a lot of fence sitters, I would rather have somebody like take a firm stance and I'd be against it and be like, you know what? I'm a Nazi. All right, cool. At least I know where you stand, you know? It, I'm, I'm okay with that. Um, even though I'm not okay with Nazis, I'm okay with you actually like having a stance instead of just like this wishy-washy back and forth. You never really know. It's all of this double speak. It's all of these long, long speeches that really say nothing. So just come out and say it. You don't mm -hmm. like black people? Say it, right? Like, I don't need you to dance around it. And even if I disagree with it, I can at least respect somebody for taking a position because this wishy-washy middle that so many people think is a safe position to be, it's not. Like the, I, I, you said it once in one of your Instagram posts and I really took it to heart. It's like, do not get on the boxcar, you know? Um, under no circumstances do you get into the boxcar. And I think that that's ultimately what's going to happen is that people kick the can down the road because they say, okay, well, if I can just slide on this side of the fence for this thing, then I'll be okay. And then when things get heated, I'll slide on this side. But the fact of the matter is eventually there's going to be no one left, you know, like everyone is already going to have taken a stand and you're going to be left in the middle. And um, it just, it just bugs me about society that we have no sort, especially American politics, right? We have no backbone. Say what you say and mean it, you know? And it's like, I'm on my, I'm on my town council and we're swinging for the fences with something right now. If it works, then, then we're going to be heroes, you know? It's like, holy shit, we really did something amazing and cool in our town. If it doesn't, then I have no trouble telling people like, fuck me, at least we tried, you know? At least, at least we tried to do something rather than just keep the status quo because the status quo is shit, right? And it's shit in my local community and it's shit across the nation. At least we tried. And if we failed, then I'll have no trouble looking at people and be like, yeah, well, we thought outside the box and it didn't work. Fuck us, right? Like, fuck me for trying. Fuck me for thinking. Versus 
so many of the complacency, like, oh, well, we, we didn't really do anything, but things didn't get better. They didn't get worse. Like, I, I don't know that personally, that bugs me on a lot of realms, you know, take a stance, have it. If you're wrong, then so what? Admit it. People have been wrong before. You're going to be wrong again. It's not the end of the world, but it might be the end of the world if you never have a position because nobody likes the, uh, you know, the, the androgynous gray blob. Mm -hmm. And this ties into what you were saying earlier about like um, Macron, Biden, Trudeau, and all of Europe just kind of like not having any sort of like, oh, you know, Russia, we're going to actually stand against you not having any stance. Um, you know, the sanctions are toothless and weak. No one's there is sitting, no one is sitting there saying like, hey, Zelensky, here's a button for 500 nukes. No one there is even like taking a risk. No one's willing to lose. And I, I think the unwillingness to lose is like, really kind of this function because you know we talk about corporations they always change their opinion because they're unwilling to lose they're unwilling to be seen as the bad guy in any sense um and in the sense of the global sphere like none of our politicians are willing to lose and make the wrong choice just for the sake of at least making a choice um and you know when you talk about you know being wrong or right um you know there's a biblical phrase about um you know something something i spit you out because you were lukewarm lukewarm yeah, and essentially it's like, be a real fucking person, you fucking dweeb. That's really what the Lord was telling us in the Bible. <laughs> but so most... saith the Lord. <laughs> be a fucking person, you dweeb. Because, <laughs> I, I mean, when you think about social interactions and the people that you like and don't like, um, there's people that you don't like and there's people you do like, and there's a lot of people you don't remember. And the worst thing you can possibly be whenever you meet someone is just unmemorable, just not there, just kind of like, uh, a, I don't want to say appeasing because that you know, implies I'm talking about like Europe, but just, uh, you know, someone who just says what people want to hear. Like I, a very I want... agreeable person. I think yeah. that's like the, the actual term because there's disagreeable people that I know, right? Like they don't give a shit about what you think. However, I can respect them for that, right? I know exactly who I'm going to get when I have to call this person because they're a service provider in my community. I know exactly who I'm going to get every single time I pick up the phone and he doesn't give a fuck about what I have going on, how important <laughs> it is to me. He's going to be him. And I can appreciate that versus the person that's just going to slide and not take a stance. Yeah, I think you nailed it. Mm -hmm. It's much better. I would much rather be remembered as an asshole that took a stand than some anonymous nobody that fades in the background of obscurity. Yeah, exactly. But if you're going to do that, you might as well just stay inside, watch Netflix or whatever. Uh, <laughs> be better off for everyone involved. And I, I sincerely believe that. I really hate going to social engagements where people are not being real or they're being fake or they won't tell me what they really think about things um you know i consider people like that to be acquaintances but not friends and uh, i i think in general when it comes to the wider economic sphere we also need to be looking at leadership in that way you know if like macron is kind of like a piece of putty but he's probably better than like trudeau and biden but like if you have someone like that leading you can't view them as allies allies they're just kind of like trading partners, I guess. Like that's the best you can say about someone who's got weak leadership. Like they're they're nothing on the economic stage. Right. What's an al a toothless ally is is useless. Dead weight. There's nothing going on. Yeah. It's dead weight. Well, let's bring yeah. it back. I know we're running pretty long here, but I did have one more kind of question I wanted to breach uh, while we have you on the podcast. Um, I've heard a lot of people 
kind of say that the way out of this for Russia might be through the crypto markets themselves. Now, it sounds like you're much more well-educated on the other avenues they have in the international banking. So that's probably not necessarily the way the Russian government's probably not going to Bitcoin tomorrow. Um, but we've covered that in past episodes and, and it may have even been one of the ones we had you on, honestly, of is this the way for us to get out of the petrol dollar to get off of this uh, inflating currency that we're in in America with the, it seems to have a, more and more that due dates coming that it's going to finally shit the bed and, and become pretty much useless. Um, is that maybe the, the direction you could see us going in the future that, that we start adopting more of these less fiat currencies that aren't influenced by stupid government leadership? Well, so there's one thing to consider at the net, the nation state level. There is a game, uh, there's game theory that's being played by a lot of countries. Um, so if you expect that like every single country is going to adopt Bitcoin in 2030, even if you don't want to, you should maybe take like five or 10% of it. Um, just so that, you know, that five or 10% now will be worth hundred percent of your treasury in 10 years if everyone else adopts it. Um, so there's kind of like a race to not be last. Um, which is one aspect of what nation states are doing. And then there's the other aspect of what nation states are doing, um, which is like, if you have a significant exposure to an inflating currency as a nation state, which is why El Salvador did it, like their, their reserve was US dollars. They didn't have a, a currency of their own. And so it made sense for them to shift over to Bitcoin away from the US dollar, um, simply because their treasury could stop being exposed to like a guaranteed inflation and instead is exposed to like the more risk asset of Bitcoin itself, um, at least when it comes to international transactions and trade. Um, will Russia make a move? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I know the Russian state government is exposure to a lot of Bitcoin miners. Um, they might have a Bitcoin reserve from mining assets um, that they're holding on to as like a hedge, but I don't really see any reason why they'd want to move away from the ruble. Um, as far as currencies go, it's, it's a lot more, it's in a more stable place than the euro or the US dollar, even if there's a lot less demand for it on the global scale. Um, so there's no real incentive for them to move away from the ruble and to release control. Cause like when you, when you make your own currency and you have your own central bank, you have a lot more control over your lending markets. Whereas like in El Salvador with Bitcoin being like the reserve, um, not the reserve just yet, they still have US dollars as a portion of their reserve and a portion of their loans, but um, they're more to the whim of external market forces if you release that control. Mm -hmm. And um, which wasn't a big deal for El Salvador because they didn't have a central bank. You know, it's either US dollar or Bitcoin. So both are external. But Russia and countries like that that have a central bank, um, if their currency is stable, then there's no real reason for them to rel relinquish that control. And this year, I suspect we'll see a few other countries shift over to a Bitcoin standard. Uh, Panama is one that could do it. Um, they also operate on US dollar standard. Um, South Africa is an interesting one. I don't think their government is looking in this direction, but their exposure, um, they have exposure to a lot of US dollar debt, but they don't have a lot of exposure to US dollar assets. Um, or is it the other way around? I don't remember, but it, it's one of the two and it actually would work out fairly well for them to shift over to um, crypto reserves, especially as their own currency is inflating. Um, Turkey has been in conversations with El Salvador. They're going through massive hyperinflation right now, but um, that's because their own government was trying to control the central bank's actions directly to give them more money, and it didn't work out as anyone would have guessed. So I'd be really surprised if Turkey ended up making a move, but like they've been in that conversation. 
Um, there's a few other countries. Um, I think Barbados is one, not Barbados, Bermuda is one um, that also has similar exposure to South Africa. So we could see more and more countries moving over. And I believe as the decade goes along, we'll see this be picked up by countries that have more of a, a move towards this sort of uh, freedom of commerce. It takes a certain sort of leader to do this. Um, but Russia, I don't see Russia doing that. And you know, do I see individuals doing that? Yeah, I think that's going to keep happening, um, as, especially as more businesses start to accept Bitcoin and more importantly, as they start to hold a Bitcoin treasury. Because it's one thing if you accept it and then you sell it and turn it to dollars right away, you're not really part of the Bitcoin ecosystem. You're just you know, giving people another way to pay you. Um, but if you hold it as part of your treasury, uh, then it changes the way you do your accounting and it allows you to actually start repricing things in Bitcoin instead and being part of that economy. Because um, ultimately, if you can reprice everything in your the whole life cycle of your business from paying your employees, paying your services, um, getting paid for what you're doing. And if you reprice that all into Bitcoin, it actually becomes a very stable process, um, even if the conversion to U.S. dollar ends up being fluctuating wildly just because of like the price in dollars. But if you're never leaving that system, it doesn't really matter. And um, I think as we see more companies move towards that and more people move towards that, we end up seeing this position where Bitcoin no longer is subject to um, the, the, the treasury market of the U.S. treasury market. Um, sorry, that came out wrong. We will no longer see Bitcoin being subject to fluctuations in the treasury market itself and the lending markets itself um, because it will be wholly separated from, that, from it. And when that happens, um, price will probably skyrocket in U.S. dollars. In other currencies, it might not. But... Um, when there's a point when no one wants to exit to U.S. dollars, but people want to exit dollars into Bitcoin, that's when you get this um, uh, complete dissection of price, or not dissection, diversion of, divergence of price. Um, to the I, moon, for all you simpletons out there. <laughs> yeah, basically, basically. And that's, that's the future I'm looking forward towards. Um, one, just so I'm not under the boot anymore and I'm in complete full control of my finances. And there are people who will you know, tell me like, oh, the deep state's in control of Bitcoin, they're this, they're that, the World Economic Forum. And I, I just haven't seen any evidence of that. Um, but you know, people will, will say it because it's like sour grapes, I think in some sense, where people who haven't invested and haven't really used it yet, they're looking for a reason for it not to be right because then at least they made the right choice not investing. Um, but you know, Bitcoin ultimately is program programmable money that you can do whatever you want with that can't be traced if you care to make yourself fully anonymous in that ecosystem. Um, and I don't know why the World Economic Forum would want you to have that. And all the CBDCs, which are central bank digital currencies they're creating, they're not programmable and they require you to input your entire ID and to create a wallet. Um, it's like the exact opposite of what Bitcoin is. So like, obviously, no, they don't want, they don't want you using Bitcoin, Ethereum or any other cryptocurrency. They don't want that. They want you using their shit, which is non-programmable and functions the exact same way as a, a debit card at the bank. Um, you know, they're, they're trying to compete because they think digital currency is popular. Let's make our own. That has none of the functions that make digital currency popular. <laughs> and um, I think people are kind of falling for that because they're looking at it like, oh, well, the World Economic Forum is getting behind digital currency. And it's like, no, they're getting behind like a fully digital ID that you can't escape from. That's not the same. But, right. you know, people want to see what they want to see. And ultimately, I think people get the price that they deserve when it comes to crypto. Um, I got the price I deserve. I've known about it for 10 fucking years. And it took me long enough to buy in. So, you know, I have no shame in that. I, I missed out, but it doesn't matter at this point. I just want out. 
we should have been listening to you back then. I should have been listening to me back then. <laughs> <laughs> we had a, a very micro version of that where we did a, an episode on Do- Dogecoin. And like, as we're doing research, it's just fucking. Bang. <laughs> <laughs> and we just shot an episode and then watched it crash. And we we're like, why didn't I fucking capitalize on that? I should have made a ton of money off of that. There was no reason for me not to. I was up in front of it and just didn't put any money on it. That is the, the curse of being human, unfortunately. Our, our emotions, <laughs> uh, they stop us from making the right choices and they push us into the wrong ones. No escaping it. It just is who we are. Yeah. We're really good at we're really good at offering advice for other people's lives, but we're really bad at implementing the same advice to our own. <laughs> yeah, most definitely, most definitely. And like I often make mistakes as well, and I do my best to be open and honest about them. Um, I made a recent mistake in crypto, um, which I ended up sharing about on the paid section of my Substack. If you want to hear about it, you go to PayPal. <laughs> 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 so if you want to learn from the kind of expert that makes mistakes all the time, that's that's me. <laughs> hey, a wise so, man uh, learns from others' mistakes, they say. Now I really wish we had a uh, like a premium paywall up so that we could be like, and if you'd like to hear what Flirt Chief has to say, then please subscribe to Against the Mob Premium and you can listen. We're still in the uh, growing stage right now. We gotta, let's get yeah, some more yeah. eyes on us before we start charging them. Hey, you got to get one of those websites up like uh, what Timcast has got going on where it's like, uh, you know, we're going to the cool stuff over there. Uh, you want to hear us say bad words, you got to pay uh, $10 If you want to hear us curse, that's, that, that one always kind of caught me I'm off I'm going to have to really practice him. the not cursing part. I have uh, seem to have lost that filter over the years. Yeah, geez, I am terrible as well. Uh, the things I've brought up today so far, the aborted baby and like uh, God calling you a fucking dweeb. <laughs> like it's just... <laughs> <laughs> not very kosher not very kosher at all <laughs> well i enjoyed it either way and i think uh you got anything else you want to cover before we get out of here matt We've kept flirt on here for about two and a half hours now i think Has it really, uh, yeah i've kind of lost track about it um but no i think we're good i mean i think we we started off um very much on track but i've enjoyed uh where the conversation's gone so no i don't have anything at this point uh flirt plug your stuff and then i'll yeah, take tell us, us where to find you Cool. I mean, you can find me on Instagram. Uh, it's flirtcheap at flirtcheap, or you can find me on Substack. It's flirtcheap.substack.com. Um, I have no other social media that I want to plug as I've been banned from Twitter and I deleted Facebook a long time ago. I don't, I don't really use anything. These are the only two places to find me. Um, once I'm gone from those two, I'll be on a beach somewhere probably. Um, and it's, <laughs> you just flip it to cheap flirt for your OnlyFans, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, most definitely. That's where all the good money goes. Um, and that one is eleven dollars a month. <laughs> the real content. Damn, exactly, good, Logan. Exactly. <laughs> cheap flirt. <laughs> I love it. I love it. All right. Well, with all that being said, guys, thanks for tuning in. If you made it to this point, God bless you for bearing with us and all of our meandering um sub uh tangents and whatnot but uh yeah we always appreciate the good conversation thanks for having uh thanks for coming on man uh we've really enjoyed um the last couple of episodes and this one with you as well you can find us on instagram facebook and twitter some iteration of against the mob um if you like the oh. podcast go ahead no, finish yours. I just realized I forgot to plug something. So go. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you like the podcast, give us a five-star review. It, it definitely does help, uh, you know, give us a nice review, share, tell a friend. I mean, that goes the longest, you know, if just word of mouth really does help us. Um, 
Yeah, that's about all I got. Go ahead. Plug your shit. Cool. So I forgot that I also like am running a podcast. Uh, we just <laughs> recorded an episode last night, so I really shouldn't have forgotten. Um, it's called Thunderpunk Radio. Um, you can find us on Instagram, Thunderpunk Radio. Um, we have a YouTube channel that has nothing on it right now. We'll eventually put up videos so you can see our faces. And, like, Same. You can, watch, <laughs> uh, you, you can watch Paul wave, wave the guns around when he does guns of the day. Um, we're on Anchor. We're on Spotify. Um, we also will be on Rumble and BitChute shortly. Um, but it's, uh, sorry, I almost, I almost said against the mob. It's Thunderpunk <laughs> Radio. Uh, that's the name of the podcast, Thunderpunk Radio. So please find us on social media. Um, Instagram, we try to keep that one updated whenever there's a new episode. Uh, if I didn't plug that, Paul would have killed me. I can't believe I almost forgot. <laughs> My just... man. My man. All right. Well, with all of that being said, guys, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. And remember, we fight against the mob with people in politics.